Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 61st episode of Slime Time, the official Dragon's Quest Dragon's Den podcast. This is Pendy. And this is Liam Land. Hey, and Dwayne's also here. We've got a real treasure for you this time. Oh, God, please don't start this. It has begun. What? I'm just saying that we have an extra special guest today. He was the product manager for Enix America and Company before the Square Enix merger. He did all their PR. Look, look, I, I, I know we have the Dragon Quest treasures coming out in the West in December, but that doesn't mean we need to start going overboard with the treasure pirate puns and talk. Oh, no, I can always appreciate some good pirate booty. Wayne, not you too. <laughs> in all seriousness, we have an extra special guest for you today. We have Justin Lucas, who is the product manager for Enix America and Company. That's right. We'll be able to get an interesting look behind the scenes at Enix America during the days of the American localization, such uh, with such games as the Game Boy Color version of Dragon Warrior uh, 1 and 2 and 3, and the PS1 release of Dragon Warrior 7. Shiver me timbers. What a show this will be. Dwayne. Dwayne. What? what? <laughs> well, welcome, Justin. It's so good to talk to you again. Thanks, guys, for having me. It's it's uh, an absolute pleasure and an honor to uh, to be on the show. Yeah, I was excited to hear we'd be talking with you today. So we, we've established that you were the product manager for Enix of America Incorporated. Uh, from uh, when to when did you work there and how did you get hired? Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, so I think I started in April of 2002 and then uh, was there through uh, the Thanksgiving announcement of the merger and then into the new year um, when the decision was made to let all the staff go. So, um, uh, you know, almost a, a good solid year at least. Um, so how I got there, um, I had worked, I, I, it sounds really weird to say this, but I, I've always worked in the video game industry. Um, I, I got my start at working designs. Uh, before that, I was a, a store manager at software, et cetera. Um, and uh, started at working designs and then um, went to Sunsoft. After Sunsoft, I went to a company called TDK Media Active, where uh, I was the brand manager on Robotech um, and some other titles there. And John Lawrence, um, who had been with Enix uh, through a lot of the Game Boy Color stuff and uh, some of the early PS1 titles, had left to, I believe he went uh, to Blizzard or Activision China. He, he left um, and um, an, an opening was available and um, being a huge fan of, of Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior, um, you know, I, I jumped at the chance to to apply and uh, got the position and um, moved uh, from Orange County uh, all the way up to Seattle in the, in the span of a weekend and um, uh, loved it. Um, loved my time uh, at EAI and uh, some great lifelong friends that uh, I still chat with to this day. So that's great. Awesome. Yeah, and many of us remember you from the uh, the NX forums as well with Knob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were good times. Good times. Um, I, I loved interacting with you guys on the on the message boards. Um, you know, it's it's so hilarious to me now to see all the attention and focus on community. Um, 
when you know when you're in like the, this RPG community, you know, interacting with the fans is so incredibly important because there's sometimes there's a long gap of time in between your titles. And, you know, the best, easiest way to, to keep the fans engaged and enthusiastic is, is that just simple interaction of, of talking about what you're playing, talking about games you like, didn't like, um, you know, um, just being personable. Man, so and I agree. I agree. Yeah. It was, uh, that was great. How you guys, interacted with the fans a lot back in the day with, with that with the with EAI. It was great. Yeah. And but so as the product manager for EAI, what were your responsibilities and what what was your day-to-day like? <laughs> um, you know, uh get in early before everyone, uh start brewing coffee, uh, you know, checking emails, and then it's it's all the the kind of unsexy things that that go into getting a game ready. It's, you know, working with a Sony or or a Microsoft or a Nintendo on, you know, different promotional activities uh, to help support the game. It's, you know, where are we at with packaging? Where are we at with the disc label? Um, You know, uh, where where are we at with the localization? Uh, You know, when is our next uh, press beat? Uh, essentially making sure that the game is in a, a state to be able to do a, a press tour. Um, it, it's it's like being kind of like a field general for all the different aspects of, of game marketing. So, um, you know, when are, where are we at with um, advertising? Where are we at with um, the budget? Uh, where are we at with what's the next trade show we're going to attend? What are we going to do for um, giveaway items at E3? What are we going to do for... The, the press kit uh, that'll go out to editors, like what kind of tchotchke items are we going to get out of Japan uh, from the team over there? Um, you know, uh, just it, it's it's a thousand different small things all being kind of managed in in order of completion and trying to get your project out the door um, in a timely fashion. Okay, so, uh, so you had mentioned you were already... <laughs> a uh, little bit familiar with Dragon Quest, but had you had played any of Enix's other games or did you have to take a bit of a crash course in their in their history and what all they would toss yeah, out B- there? Bust a Groove is still one of my favorite games. Um, uh, you know, Mischief Makers, uh, you know, is, is another one of those titles that I absolutely adore. Um, you know, uh, let's see, Valkyrie Profile, I thought was just gorgeous um um what else was there that they had done um really making me rack my brain here for uh, some of the older titles um yeah I, you know as an, an rpg fanatic you know you basically play everything that comes out so you know valkyrie profile like i said that game was just absolutely beautiful um, and, and just so incredibly well done. Um, and you know, the, the Dragon Warrior series obviously played those, played the the NES ones uh, as a kid. Um, and then, like I said, you know, um, the stuff that they had licensed out to other companies, whether it was like 989 with with Busta Groove, which I thought was just um, just such a neat um, way of of doing kind of a dance battle game that always has stuck with me. Um, you know, when I look at you know the the different rhythm genre games um and then uh you know looking at what their upcoming portfolio was at the time with you know grandia extreme and robot alchemic drive um you know um uh, the early days of like you know seeing what uh Drakengard was becoming um 
getting to meet Yuji Hori uh, and, and, you know, talk about, you know, Dragon Quest VIII. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, uh, you know, and then obviously Star Ocean uh, that was coming. Um, you know, we were all super excited about Star Ocean. Um, you know, it was um, really a chance for EAI to um, kind of take that next step in, in, being thought of as as you know uh, a thought leader in the space of of rpgs um and you know um and then there was sorry my dog in, in my office um, striker um um you know there was plans for us to look at um licensing other titles um which i don't think has ever been mentioned before uh, you know we we really wanted to get into the space in in a way that we would be able to be looked at kind of almost as like Atlas is now where like those kind of niche type games that might not um, be able to be done by a massive publisher, but can be done by a small publisher and a small team and, and have an impact um, amongst the gaming community. So, you know, there was a plan in place for us to start looking at, you know, possible titles from other publishers to bring uh, to to the Western Shores. Um, and I think, um, you know, we had a team internally that was dying to to move the needle on that. And there was a, a few titles that we looked at. And um, um, one I can tell you that we kind of lost out on was um, uh, the sequel to Devil Dice. Um that um, that came, I think Capcom released it for PS2. But that was one of the titles that we were all really, really high on and thought. Could... You had a personal stake in that, didn't you? Why? Why is that? Because like, wasn't that one of your your favorite games for the longest time? Just oh, like yeah, I no. picked up that game because of you. Yeah, no, that Devil Dice I think is is an incredible game. Um, I, I thought it was um, incredibly clever. Um, you know, I love anything that's cerebral like that. Um, and the characters I thought you know, in there were, were incredibly cute and could have been a really fun game title for us to, to work on it and bring, um, stateside. Um, you know, um, we looked at, you know, other RPGs at the time we looked at, um, you know, other titles, but yeah, that sequel to devil dice is, is the, it's kind of the, the one that got away, um, still to this day. Uh, they called it, uh, uh, bombastic. When Capcom yes, released yeah. it, I've got it. I've got it on the shelf, just right over there. Nice. Well, did yeah. you? Uh, so, 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 did you feel like the Japanese home office was supported? Oh yeah, I, totally. Um, in fact, I'm, you know, I'm still friends with um, uh, a lot of the the staff to this day. Um, uh, Futami-san, who was uh, the head of PR uh, for uh, the home office, was incredibly supportive. Um, uh, you know, he was the one that that got me into the room with with Yuji Hori to you know, introduce me to him and have him show me, you know, uh, uh, DQ8. Uh, so, uh, you know, that whole entire office was super, super supportive of us, um, you know, and really only wanted us to succeed, um, Good. you know, which is fantastic. It's all you can really ask for. Oh, yeah. yeah. And especially since Enix had packed up and moved out of America and you guys were basically reestablishing the brand in America, what were your biggest difficulties when it came to that? I mean, especially with the, you know, Dragon Warrior or Dragon Quest always being a bit of a hard sell due to non-fans falling back on the same talking points about like, oh, there's too much grinding and stuff like that. And it just hadn't been in America. We'd missed all the Super Nintendo games for that period of time as well. Sure, sure. You know, honestly, the the hardest part is is always the retail part. It's, It's convincing the buyer that, you know, 
because a buyer at, at a GameStop or a Best Buy or, you know, any of your retail stores, they only have so many dollars they can spend in a month or in a quarter or, you know, and they have to mix it across all these different genres, all these new titles. And so it's, you know, that's the hardest part for me The the, I knew the fans were, were going to be there, right? Like, you know, whether or not EAI has an office in the U.S. or not, there's always going to be Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest fans. Um, and so, you know, the fact that there's a new one coming out, it was it was kind of a, a twofold, you know, where do you advertise so that those fans of RPGs that, you know, don't mind the grinding, they they love the story and they love the the gameplay and that, that sense of accomplishment of, you know, maxing out your character or, you know, collecting uh, the coolest loot or whatever. And then it's, it's, you know, showing that fanaticism to the buyer and saying, look, you know, we've got, you know, X number of thousands of people on our message board that are, are dying to get their hands on this. You know, we're going to support it with, you know, these four marketing, um, pillars or events or advertisements we're going to be do- <clears throat> we're going to be doing a ton of in-store advertising and then it's it's getting that buyer to believe in the game as much as you do personally and as much as the fans do so that's um that was to me that's always kind of the the challenge is getting that buyer to to buy in um no pun intended um and you know it's um doing everything you can leading up into the launch uh to prove it and you know for so long retail based all of their decisions essentially off of pre-orders and um Mm. and you know there was an algorithm that they would use that you know they would purchase x you know percent above and beyond what they had pre-orders for and if you couldn't get those pre-orders then your the numbers would be very low <clears throat> and oh, wow. so it was always a, you know, that's why you you see a lot of, or you did see a lot of people doing a lot of like, you know, if you pre-order, you'll get this cool t-shirt or you'll get this cool, you know, uh, demo disc or, uh, you know, you'll get invited into the beta or, you know, use, utilizing some kind of, of physical item to get people to put that money down because those numbers then... Um, kind of increased your uh your initial order from that Absolutely. yeah so, we're seeing we're seeing that a lot today with the digital bonuses uh you know if you pre-order the game now you get some sort of digital mm-hmm. asset in the game yep. Yep. yeah i didn't realize that you guys were fighting for retail space like that and that was like one of the tools that you use to do it that's interesting oh, no it, it's um yeah i mean it, if you look at, you know, go to go to Best Buy or or Target and and count the Happiest number of slots. On Earth. Yeah, count the number of slots that they have, and then you you start figuring out like, okay, like half of these are probably going to be for like the evergreen titles, right? Like, you know, the titles that are going to sell, you know, eight days a week, and you know, um, you know, your Call of Duties or your Maddens or whatever, and then half of those spots are then kind of reserved for like new titles and and you know my math might be off but essentially like that, that's kind of an uh gives you an idea of like how limited space there is at some of these retailers yeah i actually used to for for the builders promotion i remember going into the best buy and like taking all the builders copies and spreading them out over in front of the other games so that that helps as well <laughs> that's awesome yeah <laughs> that was uh that was one of those um dragon's den promotions we did as well where we would take uh um 
a paper block uh, that we printed out and had all the Dil- Dragon Quest Builders logo and the Dragon's Den on it. And you just leave it somewhere in a store and take a picture of it. And so I put it like in front of the Minecraft stuff. <laughs> oh, nice. Smart. In, uh, in uh, Best Buy. And then I dropped one off at GameStop uh, in Manhattan and just left it there. That's awesome. Like, and see, like, that's the, the cool stuff that, like, you can do with the community and, you know, you, you can't um, say officially go do this, but, yeah. you know, giving it a tacit wink and nod and a thumbs up, you know, um, that that's um, that's so awesome. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> So, so aside from, uh, from, I just lost my voice. I'm sorry. Anyway, so, so apart from uh, competing for space on the retail shelf, which is actually something we'll come back to later. Uh, also, also you got to deal with media relations. Uh, what was that like back then compared to what it's like now with, with social media being more dominant? You know, it's crazy. Um, and, and there's no magazines left anymore, right? Like, I mean, Game Informer. Not really. Basi- yeah, Game Informer is basically it. And it's really, you know, um, it, it's still a great magazine, still a, a great read. Um, you know, but there isn't, you know, uh, a Gamers Republic. There isn't a, um, a game fan anymore. There isn't. Uh, next Sadly. year mm-hmm. um and you know so when you had all those options you could kind of pick and not pick and choose but you could find the the editorial staff that was going to be most conducive to getting you the the biggest spread um uh in the magazine as far as like you know number of pages or number of paragraphs um and and now it's it's so much more driven by not only social media, but it's it's you know um, these what we call like KOLs, key, key opinion leaders mm-hmm. uh, on you know twi- uh, Twitch and TikTok, and that aren't um, uh, aren't in in the same way that an editor was kind of uh, you know worked for the magazine itself the the kols are, are more about you know um uh themselves as the brand um and so it's 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 different is it better is it worse i don't know um you know it, it was um it was definitely a lot more fun to do press tours um, than, you know, um, when, you know, go to Chicago and, and see all the different Ziff Davis places uh, or uh, editors. Uh, then you do the uh, San Francisco leg and you would see, you know, the IGNs and um, uh, a lot of the IDG books. And then you'd go to Minnesota and, and go visit Game Informer and, you know, you'd have uh, and, and you would demo the games and, and now it's you send the build out and um, and hope that, you know, it's it's reviewed properly and um, uh, fairly. Uh, and so it, it's 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 different, um, you know, but it, it's like everything. It's it's like the change from physical to digital. Like you just kind of got to roll with the punches. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, um, I think it's a, it's it's a great way to reach a lot of people. Um, and it might not be, you know, in the numbers that you could reach all at once in, in like a magazine where they'd have a, you know, a couple hundred thousand readers and, you know, X number of impressions based off of that magazine being read, you know, by one or two people, you know, you double it. And so, um, it's, it's a lot more work, um, with, with like the, the Twitch streamers and things like that, but it's, it's just as fantastic working with them because some of them are the most, um, fervent evangelists you will ever meet for either different genres or different brands or different um uh publishers even 
Um, so it, it's pretty awesome to see how, you know, the the death of the magazine has led to like the rise of, of the, the streamers. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a that that everything is uh, the media has branched out so much more in, into different options. Like you were saying, like you've got your um, you still have your display space and your um, programmatic, um, but then you also have social and and uh, when it comes to Twitch, you're you're actually uh, the deal there is to have them just play and promote the game. Is that how that's working? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um um and it's it's uh you know it but it's the, it was the same with the editors as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you had to get them the the code. Um, they had to actually play the game. Um, mm-hmm. and um and then essentially the the write up that they would do would would be no different than what the the streamer is is vocalizing on their stream. Mm-hmm. It's just the the editor had it in in written word. Um, and it was on a magazine stand. And so you know the the bad part of of magazines was you had this like super long lead time. And so, you know, many of the magazines, it was, um, you know, months in advance, you'd have to get them game code to play and, um, and then hope you timed it right to hit the right magazine that you wanted to be in so that that review was in that magazine that was in the GameStop store the month that your launch was. Whereas with streamers, it's almost immediate. Um, you know, they're mm-hmm. talking about your game that day, that night that they get the build, they're streaming it and and their fans are are asking questions and, and learning about it. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's completely different. Um, and um, and I think it's it's for the best for the fans. Um, you know, the fans get to see stuff immediately as opposed yep. to waiting months uh, to see it in a, in a magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense um, for print. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Dan. Uh, for print, the average the average used to be about three months in advance, or like sometimes sometimes six weeks, depending on the type of publication. But I remember with certain with certain magazines, you mentioned Game Fan, and what was great if you got an issue, a Game Fan, Game Fan would have those four, six, eight, ten page to ten page spreads, and if you wanted artwork, uh, they would cram every single piece of artwork or every single screenshot uh, as they could. I remember their Street Fighter Alpha 2 spread, which was incredible at the time. And that that kind of gave you a chance to really kind of sit down and dig in, kind of figure out how the game looked and kind of would get a feel for it. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. I want to I want to play that. And it's and this is going to be like old man yells at cloud a little bit. I personally (laughs) don't don't do twitch it's because it's like i don't i don't want to i don't know just like sometimes i just i just want to see the game i don't necessarily want commentary over actually i never want commentary over it whenever uh whenever i'm looking for gameplay footage on 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 youtube the first like word i hear i'm like nope (laughs) it's kind of like watching football on the weekend and, and having like you know horrible commentators on there you just you know you end up turning the volume down all the way and yes and like street fighter tournaments are the same way it's just like these dudes just babble over it's like can i please watch watch the fight so Dwayne, what you need is a mime uh a a mime mime. oh i'm just reacting they have those they have like clownish reactions weird microphones and just uh no that's another reason why i just don't do twitch i don't get it it's it's weird it's scary to me (laughs) um so so knob had mentioned uh that the office for that he worked at for um at uh, nx america was uh i think he said it was adjacent to a nail salon and it was very humble beginnings was that the same office that you were (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We, um, 
we had a very, we were a small office to begin with. So, I mean, we didn't have, you know, um, uh, in, in many of the, the places I've worked at, um, you know, it, it's very humble office space. Like it's, it's not like, um, uh, very few places I've been at have been like mythic quest, let's say, um, uh, you know, at, when I was at Sunsoft, we were right next to the regional office for, um, for, uh, for Ford. So like the, the regional managers that would go to like the different car lots to make sure that, you know, Ford was being, um, promoted properly like their office was right next door to us in this little small it looked like um condo buildings um Enix was, um, uh, you know, a very cute little quaint little building, um, that, um, looked right down on the lake. Um, it was, um, you know, just, a um, nothing fancy or, 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 um, flashy, um, right before the merger though, we did, um, move into a new office building, um, that was, you know, kind of aligned with our plans of, you know, if we we're going to, with doing like Drakengard and Star Ocean and and anything else that that might have been on the roadmap, um, you know, we were going to have to staff up considerably uh, to handle these big profile titles, not only from a QA perspective, but from um, you know uh, just an operational standpoint. And so we needed the extra space to be able to house everyone to be able to do the play testing. Um, you know, do all the other things that we we needed to do. Staff up internally on the marketing side. <clears throat> um, staff up internally on the operational side. Um, probably have to staff up on uh, some of the localization side. Um, and yeah, um, so w- uh, it was a, a beautiful place. Um, we weren't in there very long, um, and it, it never got used. But yeah, I mean. And the crazy thing is, like, nobody ever complained about the building. Like, you know, we had internet, um, we had power, and we had our computers, um, and, you know, we were able to get everything done that we needed to. And it, it kind of uh, was very DIY, uh, which I thought fit kind of our our scrappiness at the time. So, mm-hmm. well, yeah. Were there any uh, any challenge, like, big challenges that you saw in, in localizing in, a, in that in the small uh, office that you're originally no no actually if anything i think it probably made it easier just because everyone was you know really close to each other like nobody was you didn't have to yell across a, a building to like you know ask uh jw like how the latest build looks uh who was our, our qa lead um or you know yell at, at uh tori uh who was um the head of localization you know where um you know uh how many you know um how many characters are in um you know when when do you think we'll be able to submit for esrb like it was a very tight-knit group that you know worked very closely together and but you know everyone got along fantastic you know everyone um was always pulling for each other helping each other out um and we were all huge gamers as well so you know um we we spent a you know um many nights after work playing starcraft uh warcraft um uh mario tennis uh we had some incredible mario tennis tournaments (laughs) and um yeah and so you know that closeness you know really made us work better together and and more closely together um 
to to get the stuff done that we needed to to launch these titles and and um, get ready for for the next title coming out. Nice, nice. So when you had the localization for Dragon Warrior Four remake for the PlayStation One fall through because of a uh, heartbeat closing its doors, what was sure. it like for you all at EA, EAI? Like at that point, you even had the infamous coming 2002 advertisement on the back yeah. of the Dragon Quest Seven manual. Oh, here sure. we go. Yep, yep. Here we go. Um, it was, you know, uh, again, no pun intended. It was disheartening. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, love it. Uh, to, um, you know, uh, go on sabbatical or or shut down their office, and then it was, you know, um, it, you know, stuff happens. Um, uh, and and so it's it's you can either dwell on it and just, you know, curl up in the fetal position, or you can kind of, you know, try and find solutions. And so we looked at everything like, okay, like what, like, let's find a developer that's got nothing going on right now. Maybe they can take a look at the source code and, and figure out how to make this work um, as quickly as humanly possible. Um, And, and even doing that, like, you know, the timelines that it would take for someone to get up to speed on the code itself. And we're not even talking like, you know, putting in the the text, it, it just, it wouldn't have been feasible, feasible given the, the market conditions. Um, you know, as much as we wanted for to come out in, in, you know, any way, shape or form, um, you know, it, it just, it wouldn't have, have been feasible and the amount of like, and then even if we did find somebody that was willing to play in spaghetti code and could learn it fast enough to be able to start extracting the text out, um, uh, inserting the text in, uh, and then be available through the entire QA process to find bugs, fix bugs, um, through the um, Sony submission process, where if there's an issue there that has to be fixed or addressed, and you've got to you know, fix it, create a whole new build, submit a whole new build, you know, it, it would have been just absolutely not feasible. Um, you know, and it's still, to, th- there are times at night where I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, what if we had done that? No, that, that wouldn't work. Like, um, <laughs> it, it, what we're, we're 18 years after the fact, like, you know, it, believe me when I say like, if there had been any way that team could have found a way to do this and found a developer that was willing to commit to the timeline needed and necessary to make the title um, successful, we would have done it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you just because you find a developer, that developer has to then put themselves on the line and say, mm-hmm. yes, we can learn the code and do what needs to be done and be able to hit this date at guaranteed um, no problem. And, you know, that was the other part of the equation is no developer is, is going to, you know, commit to like, you know, um, you know, two to four weeks of, of learning code, someone else's code base, no less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, uh, a couple of months of, of fixing and, and uh, deploying new builds, uh, QAing uh, the, a game of the size and scope of that, you know, and fixing the bugs and then going through the, the SDM submission process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. Again, no pun intended. Um, uh, but it, it, it happens so often um, where, you know, teams get disbanded. Um, you know, there was a title, um, 
and I think it was I think it was when I was at NX that we that we looked at it was a title called Chain Dive uh, for PS2, and it was a really cool, um, beautiful looking game that had a really fun play mechanic where like you just kind of like um, strung from from ring to ring, and we reached out to to Sony about it and. Um, and the team had already been disbanded uh, instantly at, at Sony. And so there was really no hope of getting that original team back together. Um, and if we wanted it, you know, it probably would have gone to like a junior programmer who then had to learn somebody else's code base and and so on and so forth. And so it kind of was the exact same situation in a lot of ways. And sometimes that just that happens. And unless you have a, a fantastic programmer in-house that can take that source code, learn it and, and figure out, you know, how they've built their code base and then be able to make changes or, or uh, implement other ideas or, or um, items in there to fix things. It, it, it becomes a very, very risky proposition very quickly. Here's something I don't think has ever been really asked before. So, um, you know, nowadays localization is worked is worked along with the with the game being um, created. But so back then, did Enix of uh, uh, Japan or or EAI in any way say, "Hey, this is this is one of our this is our flagship title. We're kind of banking on this." Um, like, it, is there is there anything like maybe in their contract that they could have enforced to say, oh, hey, you can't you can't leave and unless you fix this or at least get us something workable that we can take to someone else? Or? No, no, I mean, so many times, like a, a lot of those contract deals are are done with one region in mind. Right. Um, and then it's um, another contract is put in place to do the the US version. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I mean, Japan was incredibly supportive of us trying to find a solution. Um, you know, it, it, they exhausted all avenues on their side as well. Um, and and they were very helpful in trying to help us find a, a developer in Japan that could help us do this. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't anything that, that we could have, you know, and, and then the other part of that equation too is, you know, even if there was a contract in place, how hard is a team going to work that has basically shut down and doesn't want to do anything right now? Um, um, and so, um, you know, yeah, they, they helped us look at options. We looked at options, you know, uh, for different teams that were, you know, North America based. Uh, Japan helped us look at, at developers um, in Japan that were um, kind of proficient um, at, at this type of, of, of issue, because it does happen pretty often where, you know, teams get disbanded um, after the title launches in Japan, and then somebody comes around and, you know, finds that hidden gem, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, who's, who do we work with to, to make this happen for the, the U.S. market? And um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they did everything on their side that they possibly could. And again, if if the team if the team is shut down and everyone's kind of scattered to the winds, and you know, um, some of them had, had kind of I think had come out publicly and said like they didn't want to do any video game software at the at that moment in time, you know, um, 
contractually, like it's it it could have been just as bad um, as as having somebody with no knowledge of the code base um, getting involved with it. So um, yeah, I mean, like I said, we looked under every rock, every nook and cranny, like thought of you know different ideas. Um, you know, uh, tried to figure out some way of making it happen in a timely fashion so that, you know, um, you know, like you said, I mean, we were, we were planning on that title coming out, like coming, it's on the back of the, on, on sevens, uh, manual, like that was our plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's unfortunate. Um, but, um, you know, it's one of those, what could have been, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like how, and, at that point, like how deep into the localization were you on the title at all? Did you end up wasting like a lot of resources and money uh, in the middle of it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, you know, um, I don't remember the exact percentage uh, of completion on it or, or the dollars spent on it, but you know, um, we were far enough along to where you know we felt pretty confident uh, advertising it on the back of, of seven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, and. Um, you know, it, it's unfortunate. It, it sucks because I, I know the fans would have been one, just in love with the game, mm-hmm. um, and two, just super appreciative of, of having it in, in their hands, um, and would have been um, so much fun to to work on and um, and and have everyone, you know, just lose their mind over, you know, just what a great game it is. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, uh, it's unfortunate. And you know, we probably, you know, if we had found somebody to do it, um, you know, the the hardest part would have been to maintain that timeline of getting it out by when we needed it to get it out, and, and mm-hmm. not have it come out, you know, in two thousand six. Um, once, you know. Uh, once they learned the code base, it, it probably wouldn't have taken that long. That's an exaggeration, but it definitely would have been a very, very hard retail sell um, at that point because of, you know, the PS2 was already cracking on all cylinders. Um, you know, it, it probably would have been at least, you know, after Robot Alchemic Drive. And so, you know, that's pretty far into the PS2 life cycle at that point, or, you know, what we all thought was going to be the PS2 life cycle, I guess. Um, that thing kicked around for like 10 years. Um, <laughs> and so, but, you know, retailers only wanted to carry PS2 games and trying to get them to carry a PS1 game and a PS1 game that was going to be, you know, an RPG um, and, you know, a price point that was going to be comparable to a PS2 game was going to be a really, really hard sell. Um, and, you know, a lot of retailers had already switched over their slots. So like, you know, at Best Buy or Target, um, you know, they're, they're behind the glass cases where they hold stuff was designed to now hold PS2 games. And so a PS1 game, um, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't interested, uh, I think at, at that point in carrying PS1 titles, um, you know, you can look at like Ark the Lad, right? Was a, a PS1 title that came out, you know, pretty definitely very late in, in the the PS1 life cycle. And I think PS2 games were already already out because I think you know Gun Griffin Blaze and Silphied were already released by Working Designs at that point in time. And you know, even they had you know a hard time with with Sony. They had a hard time with um, um, you know getting retailer support for a 
a, a PS1 title at that point in time. So, you know, imagine, I was about to say, uh, yeah. I was about to say back then, the only the only PS1 one titles left that weren't that weren't uh, greatest hits. There was like the one rack and it was like the greatest hits and then the Ark the Lad collection. Yep. Yep. Oh, and and there was like there was the greatest hit stuff. And then there was like that nine ninety nine value loan, um, like from a one games, which was a sub level sub label of age tech. Um, and then there was uh, the stuff uh, that Crave was was doing at, at 9.99 price points. And if you move enough units, it's fantastic, you know. But you've got to hope that you can move enough units. And then you know, a lot of those titles were very, very quick localizations, where you know it's a it's a, a horizontal or a vertical shooter, um, not a whole lot of localization needed there. So they can turn that really quickly and not spend a lot of overhead time and localization, marketing efforts, etc., to get it out into the marketplace. And so, yeah. and at that uh, point, do you want do you want to rush a product just to get it to market and it and it be compromised just here and here and there, and you're not proud with all the corners you cut? Delays are temporary. Mediocrity is forever. Exactly. Uh, and well, well, it's uh, for for again encountered the same problem. Uh, it seems it seems to be like a weird problem for has because because back when the original came out, the SNES was already around and kicking for about about a, about a year at that point, and the NES life cycle was pretty much dead. But a lot of the fans uh, had found had found Dragon Quest four through 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 emulation and there started just getting this huge like groundswell of dragon warrior four fans and this was going to be like the first remake then yes just like we were so happy we we're finally getting a, a remake that it got canceled everyone yep. was like oh but then all the party chat got cut from the ds version too so fours had a little bit of a bad luck but now that it's on mobile i think it's all good now yeah yeah and you know it, it's the the playstation version would have been so like it it would have been so amazing to play you know on um on the you know on an actual game console uh, i've never heard of this word emulation i don't know what it means <laughs> <laughs> yeah we were we were talking about we've talked about in episodes past on how a lot of people don't realize how amazingly beautiful the graphics are for the playstation remake uh even compared to like the ds uh, remake it's it's probably the best version of it out there in terms of graphics it was it was just it was too bad we didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Now we're just like rubbing it in everyone's faces. <laughs> well, here it was beautiful. It was the graphics were so great. Like the, you know, it had everything. You know, it wasn't uh, a gimped version for for DS. Like, yeah, uh, I, you guys that are fans, like, if you can go hunt down a PlayStation version, um, and uh, and you know, if you have to get on GameFAQs to to help you walk through it and just and, and just immerse yourself and enjoy it and just. Hmm. Soak it all in. Oh yeah, I, I'll I, balance I, it I, out some. I'll balance it out some. Um, um, in the mine on the way down to Estark's castle, uh, the red, the red skeletons. I don't, don't remember what their names are in this, in this version. But you will encounter a lot of those, and they will, I think, put you to sleep. They'll spin the, uh, the sword, and they'll do something, and just suck all the fun out of the game with <laughs> that one that one stretch you will encounter nothing but red uh, but red skeletons and it's not that they're hard they just have that status switch on on you and so and so with every battle you're thinking oh great it's gone i can keep on going fight a stark another like another encounter more red skeletons like damn it no sick of these yeah uh so, so I mean, you, you were uh <laughs> 
you, you were talking about um you know go go get a copy i remember when when this was canceled i actually did order a copy from japan and got a boot disc specifically to play uh and yeah it definitely is a very beautiful uh version of the game um it's uh it's one we tried to <laughs> the fan community definitely tried to hound you guys on the forums uh about getting the code so that we could find somebody ourselves to to uh, uh to translate it but uh you know as we've as we've said uh there's a it's a lot more complicated than that and <laughs> yeah. the only group that i know has gotten close that we interviewed last year even they seem to be on a hiatus um at the moment so um yeah it's it's tough and it's unfortunate um but i mean at least we do have the the ds and mobile versions and everything and uh and importing dragon quest 4 is still an option um it's i think it's greatest hits in japan if i remember correctly oh yeah um so uh and it's still available in stores uh there um completely sealed and everything so yeah it would have been it would have been fantastic if like the playstation classic had that as a as a title and like you know um square enix you know secretly did something with it and you know was able to to get it on Mm -hmm. there that that would have like made that console like just worth its weight in gold definitely yeah i would have bought it then (laughs) um yeah especially you know if they could have just taken the mobile script and dumped it in or something um but uh, well it's uh uh, with the mobile script, they would have a really hard time doing that because uh, because the the PlayStation and also and also PS2 5 uh, it has a, it has a pretty strict character limit mm-hmm. uh, and it and it also has to use like that really wide English font. So I think I think that they would have had to tri- just still do a lot of editing on the script yeah. just to get it to fit. All right, fair enough. Um, so uh, do, do you know, uh, um, Justin, if, if uh, EAI was happy with the Western sales during your tenure? Or did you did you get that feedback from Japan or the U.S.? Um, well, I mean, if, if uh, both, basically um, on, on the U.S. side. Yeah. I mean, you know, the we all knew what what the market was and would support, um, you know, would we have liked to have sold a bajillion copies of every single one of our titles? Absolutely. <clears throat> but you know um the rpg market at that point in time was so different than what it is now um and then um you know and japan was was supportive of us and um you know it it was a lot of learning um and education that we had to give them on the differences between uh the the market there and you know when it was dragon warrior 7 sold like 7 million copies in japan um something just absolutely you know, a ridiculous number, like kids were getting like, um, we're skipping, uh, excuse me, skipping school to, to go, you know, purchase that day. Like, and I think like the Japanese government finally made it like a, like a holiday whenever a Dragon Quest game gets released so that kids wouldn't skip school to go get the game and and start playing. Um, and so, you know, and the U S market, um, it was always that, um, that kind of, it was never said or, or stated outright, but it was always kind of that like, well, why aren't you guys selling as many units as Final Fantasy? And um, and so that was always kind of an unfortunate comparison that was that was given to us um, sometimes. Um, but for the most part, you know, uh, Robot Alchemic Drive, I think outseat outdid everyone's expectations. Um, and um, Grandi Extreme, I thought, did really really well. Um, um, 
and and the PS1 titles did very well too. But yeah, Japan was always very supportive of us, um, both at a professional level and at, and at personal level. Um, like I said, uh, Futami-san, who was the, the head of PR uh, for Japan, um, was just fantastic. I had an absolute blast working with him, getting to do Tokyo Game Show with him. Um, uh, was was incredible um, and um, you know he was very supportive of us helped to facilitate uh, that massive game informer spread of uh, star ocean that we did um, right before the uh, right before the merger um, and so that was uh, a lot of fun to do that yeah I, I mean and we were supportive of, of them as well um, you know in in helping them to um, look at titles from from the west to to bring to japan so um you know uh i think it's uh tomb raider um mm-hmm. uh the president of nx america um put together that that deal that got um nx to release tomb raider in japan um and and um facilitated that and and you know that's kind of the the linchpin of of everything that happened afterwards right like you know um uh, Square Enix buying IDOS, um, uh, you know, that being part of the family there. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, we were, we all worked really well together. Um, um, uh, Kobayashi, uh, who was kind of the, um, uh, the general manager in a lot of ways for the, the Japan side, um, uh, was super supportive, was always coming out, uh, to the states um to to talk with us um you know tell us about things that he was working on um kind of the plan going forward um yeah i mean i i I can't say a a bad thing about either office you know i thought they were super supportive of of us and our executive team um me on the marketing side um yeah it was it was um, um it was it was a really you know close knit team across you know both territories awesome awesome so uh so going back to the forums for a second after uh after knob left you became the administrator of the nx forums uh how how important is a company's uh a relationship and direct interaction with the fans and also just for fun what was it like working with knob you know i didn't get to work that much with knob um like when i came on board it was kind of like the end of his run and i kind of took it over um because i think he had other projects lined up to do um how important it, it's it's, in, it's incredibly important uh i mean there is not you know there's there's kind of the um like do it because we want you to buy stuff aspect of it which i I never ever thought i did um for me it was like just like interacting with you know people that like the the same stuff that i do people that like the games that i like and so i i you know it was it was super important and super valuable especially when there's kind of that that lull in between releases where you know you might not have anything to announce yet you might not have you know um uh uh the the next you know uh trailer ready yet or or something like that and so you know for me it was it was a great way to interact with the fans see what you know was going on within the within our community um and then at at a larger level what was going on within the you know rpg community you know what were fans looking forward to playing what was i you know what hadn't i seen yet um to go that weekend um and and pick up and and play um uh you know what um 
and, and not even just RPGs, like just games in general. Like, you know, um, there was, uh, you know, uh, there was the Xbox out at that point in time. There was a PS2. Was the GameCube out at that time? I think it mm-hmm. was. So, I mean, you had three platforms with a ton of great titles. And, you know, yeah, I work in the game industry, but it doesn't mean like I get to sit on like IGN all day and, and you know, sort by and, and, you know, look and see what's coming out this week. Um, <coughs> in fact, most of the time um, I'm so out of the, the loop um, on, on what's actually coming out that week um that you know I, I would honestly rely on you guys a lot to like let me know what you know what was coming out so that when i did my best buy run or my run to GameStop, you know i knew what for sure i had to go pick up uh, and play um and then you know just like i said a lot of it was you know kind of keeping my fingers on the pulse of the community what what you guys wanted to see what you guys wanted to see more of what you guys wanted to know more of so that you know i could from a a marketing perspective get that content out to you guys as quickly as possible and keep you you know um fiending from for more information on you know the voice actors we're going to use for grande extreme or Mm. uh you know um uh kind of the the backstory of uh the team at sandlot you know who um were a lot of uh guys that used to be at, at human entertainment and did things like um uh remote control dandy um or you know the the um uh gosh uh, the artwork done by uh kawamoto son for uh uh for rad you know um it, it helped me to know what you guys wanted more of so that i could get it for you and and keep you guys engaged enthusiastic and, and eagerly awaiting the release nice awesome. nice and speaking of that uh community interaction do you remember who came up with the idea to spearhead the grassroots campaign to support the local Dragon Quest fan sites? You know, I, there were so many of you guys that were locally, it just kind of made sense. Um, uh, it was probably Paul, um, who was the, the president of, of NX America. You know, I think there was, um, was it RP Gamer was local up there, or at least, you know, close enough by that, you know, coming by the office was was actually doable. Um and, um, you know, uh, it, it's such a, a fantastic way to in, engage with, you know, people that are really kind of putting their life work into supporting the games that you're you're doing. And so um, I thought it was a, a fantastic um, idea. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it went over well with the, the sites that got invited. And I think it definitely went over well with the, the fan community um, that got to be a part of it. Um, you know, kind of vicariously. Um, now, nowadays, like we could do it with live streaming, you know, a, a camera or a GoPro walking around the office and, and you know, um, and have everyone jump on a, a Twitch stream that, you know, one of you guys wouldn't watch. Um, Sorry, and, I'm old. I can't, I can't help the fact that I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and be able to do it live. Um, but, you know, back then, technology was definitely not what it, excuse me, what it is now um, to be able to do something like that. So, you know, um, especially for a, a small office, it's it's much easier to do um, where, you know, um, th- there's, you know, you don't have to worry about like, oh my God, like we can't let them like look in the, the art department and see like, you know, what the boss for level three looks like or, you know, stuff like that where, where like at a large company where you'd have to kind of have a very guided tour of the office um you know i thought um i thought you know 
having that interaction was really, really cool. Um, and, and it seemed to be really well received. Oh, and we were really grateful for those uh, E3 passes that you guys got us. Oh, absolutely. For the for the for for my site, for for me and Edwin, for the Dragon Quest Dragon Warrior News Network, and then for uh, Dustin and from Dwayne for the Dragon Quest Shrine and going out to E3 that year. And you know, we one of the reasons why we came up with this episode was you know 20 years ago that's when that happened, and we all went out there and. I got to interview 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 you back then, and now 20 years later, we're doing it again. <laughs> so it's great. You know, and um, and I still try and do that stuff. In fact, you know, uh, I'm going to be um, uh, showing uh, the game that I'm currently working on at PAX, and you know, I, I've been looking at ways to you know get people there, you know, find somebody who's local within the the fan community, and and give them a pass and let them you know experience that type of stuff that they might not otherwise because that's you know th- this gaming is such a small community um and it's so important to find ways to give back um if that makes any sense you know whether it's you know myself um you know i'm always trying to uh help my employees learn more or get experience that they might not otherwise you know making sure that you know they have somebody to to mentor them and be able to to get them to to grow um you know i've had a, a ton of employees over the years that you know i'm super proud of you know <clears throat> uh, where they're at now um and, and and the titles they're working on and the fun that they're having um and um and even you know um former employees i still call and check up on them see how they're doing you know um and uh, and yeah it, for me that it's it's super important because you know i am incredibly lucky to have the job that i do um you know i grew up in a small town in northern california that by chance just happened to have a small video game publisher also located there and um I worked at a GameStop putting myself through college and um, the president of the company would come in all the time and I'd help him out. And, um, you know, if, if it wasn't for that, I'd, uh, I'd probably still be at a GameStop managing somewhere. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I am incredibly lucky and, and I don't um, uh, forget how lucky I am. And, and I'm always trying to uh, find, find ways to, to, you know, interact with the fans, give the fans um, the things that, you know, that they're clamoring for and, and hopefully, you know, um, give them uh, experiences uh, that, um, you know, can, can help change their life. Um, so, so the, as NX fans, we were kind of spoiled because of the, because you were always so honest in explaining issues in detail uh, with us between you and Nob, um, you know, uh, today, if a company interacts with customers at all, it's usually through a community manager. Um, in your opinion, why do so many of the companies keep their fans at arm's length like that? Uh, wait, you mean companies keep their customers at arm's length? What? It, it, you, it, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, you I, I don't us. know why. Um, you know, um, th- there's really nothing to be gained from from not being honest with the fans like i think you know if nothing else it kind of gave you guys an insight into you know what we were working on what you know our strategies were what you know um and and made you guys part of the process like you guys Mm -hmm. were you guys were essentially part of the team um and so i i never felt um like i needed to keep you guys at arm's length um either you guys that that 
ran sites or or members of of the message board. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I always wanted to be open, honest, transparent, and you know, um, and address issues uh, because it's 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 way better to address it like immediately than to let it fester and turn into something else entirely that that it doesn't need to be. Now, as far as like you know, I think community management is so important nowadays with the tools that are available. Um, and the um, there just isn't enough time in a day as like a brand manager to also be on the message board and be in the discord and on Twitch and on, you know, all these these channels and be able to manage your time effectively. And that's where like a community manager is great to have as a part of that. And especially if, you know, you empower your community manager to be open, honest and transparent and, mm-hmm. you know, engage with the fans as opposed to kind of um, stiff arm them and, and not let them be a, a part of the process. Um, you know, uh, any of the community managers that, that I've worked with, I've always, you know, told them, you know, anything I tell you, you're free to tell the fans, you know. Um, That's nice. And, um, you know, and and I always make it a. a a part of my day to, you know, in between meetings, in between, you know, um, uh, calls, you know, to jump in to the discord and see what, what our fans are talking about. And, you know, even if I'm just in there for five minutes, that's, you know, I I'm interacted with somebody and, and that fan now knows like, Oh my gosh, like that guy took time out of his day to respond to my question in the discord. And, um, you know, that means that means the world to me. And I'm, I'm sure it probably means the world to them. That's yeah. uh, that's great, because I often I often feel bad for a lot of uh, community managers because I often feel they get they get everyone's complaints, just like they get the good stuff. But then like all the nastiness, all the hate it gets it gets on them. And when they're only given a limited amount of info, they can't do their job properly to take the stress off of them and take the stress off of the fans, too. For sure. For sure. Totally agreed. Um, you know, and, and a lot of that, too, is is, you know, and, and I can't speak for every, you know, brand manager or marketing director or whatever. But, you know, sometimes there isn't the information to share, um, you know, depending on, on what the issue is or or, you know, what's going on. And um, and then a lot of times, you know, um, they just don't want to be out there publicly, you know, stating X, Y or Z is the reason why we're not doing this title or that title or, or bringing it. To the states, and so you know, uh, each each uh, one is different. Um, so it's it's hard to say, but you know, the more that you empower your community manager or your social media manager with information, um, it, it it helps to to just make their life easier. And it, at the end of the day, it makes your life easier. Yeah, because uh, because like. Uh, like with what happened at uh, with four, you know, you know, you're going to have angry fans. But if you go out there and explain it, I think I think that really in, in it, even though it still it still pops up all the time, uh, it cut down on a lot of screw NX. They were trying to screw over the fans just like I hate them now. I'll never support them again. And that's that's kind of it's kind of the opposite when the merger happened because for the longest time there was just nothing. And so people really didn't know what was, what was going on. And even, even some of the people that worked there didn't know what was going on. So. Yeah. And 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 speaking of that merger, were you guys, when you initially found out about it, were you excited about it or were you really wary about it when it first Uh, happened? 
so what let's see we found out we got a phone call like five minutes before it became public information on yahoo japan oh, uh, oh wow yeah uh, <laughs> so and it was like right before thanksgiving day weekend i think it was like the last day of work and then you know everyone was going their separate ways for for thanksgiving and was going to be out of the office for like four or five days um and i just remember like my phone blowing up with like because you know all the the different magazine editors all had my personal cell phone number and <laughs> We're, we're all, you know, blowing me up. Like, what is going on? Like, what have you heard? What do you know? Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, we didn't know anything until, you know, we got a phone call like five minutes before the Yahoo Japan article showed up. Um, I think, you know, we were excited. Um, you know, uh, there there was going to be, you know, um, a lot to learn from, from the success that Square um, had had in the U.S. Um, and I think there was a lot that, that we could, you know, teach them about, you know, interacting with the community and the mm. fans. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and I, I think we were all pretty hopeful. Um, you know, um, there were a few of us that owned houses up uh, in Seattle. And so, you know, they weren't uh, excited to move. You know, there was hope that like we could, you know, maintain two offices for a while and, until we figured it out. You know, um, those of us that were single or, you know, rented were, you know, were excited to um, to possibly you know come down to LA and, and, and work um, and so yeah it was um, it was uh, it was such a like the timing was just weird right like it was like right before we all went on Thanksgiving and and then it was uh, myself and and Kyoko who was the head of PR over at Squaresoft you know trying to figure out like messaging and communication and like mm. you know who's going to take the lead on X Y and Z and and, you know, who's going to, you know, do we need to put out a joint statement, you know, to editorial and to the fans? And so, yeah, it was it was um, it was exciting um, for sure. Um, but, you know, it was it was a lot of, you know, um, of just trying to figure out, like, what was what's what's going to happen next? So did you actually you ended up moving down to L.A., like the entire office moved down to L.A.? No, no. Um they came in, I think it was after, after the holidays, I think it was in January and, and they, um, they kind of laid out, you know, everything's going to be moved down to Squaresoft. They're going to handle publishing for everything. And, um, and then we were all given uh, severance packages oh, wow. um, and, um, um, and, and that was basically it. And then, you know, that, I think it was maybe January and like, it was like, you know, at, at the end of March, this office will be shut down. So, you know, they, they gave us a couple of months to kind of, you know, get our things in order, um, you know, get, um, get everything kind of boxed up that needed to be boxed up or, um, get rid of the stuff that needed to get, be, get rid of, um, and which, which Dragon Quest merchandise to loot from the office. You know, there, there wasn't a whole lot, um, um, just because the, the, that first office was so small, we didn't really have any place to really store it, uh, for the most part. I, I think we only had just like a few cabinets of stuff. So it wasn't like we had like, you know, a, a, a small shop of, of, you know, uh, Dragon Quest stuff. And, um, and I'm still finding stuff <coughs> as I go through like my garage boxes, like, um, I found, um, uh, a bunch of old, um, NX stickers. Um, and I found, um, oh gosh, what did I find? Uh, you know, I found some, um, like dragon, uh, dragon quest seven promotional, like in Japan, like if you bought like a bottle of Pepsi, there was like a little, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Bottle caps. 
yeah, the bottle caps. I, I found some of those, oh, wow. um, and uh, I, I ended up just giving them to a uh, a friend of mine whose whose buddy was a huge fan of of Dragon Warrior. So um, I, I gave those bottle toppers to them, and then um, I found some like Dragon Warrior Seven, like this trading card game that had been released in Japan. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. For those, but yeah, I'm, I'm still always finding stuff, and and there's you know I've I've kept a few mementos like um, I've got uh, uh, up on my shelf I've got uh, um, a Mark Hamill signed uh, Star Wars figure from when we had Mark Hamill do the voice acting for Grandia Extreme. Yeah, you guys had a great cast for that game. You had mentioned that before, uh, you know, letting people in on like who was going to be the voice actors for that. Yeah, that game. But yeah, that was a good that was a really good cast for that game. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, I. You know, um, Lisa Loeb, she was phenomenal. Uh, I, I yeah. can't say enough good things about the, the voice acting work that she did. Um, and, and this was right before she got cast or right before she started doing the, the voiceover work for Mary Jane in the animated uh, Spider-Man series. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I forgot she did that. Yeah, yeah. And she she was phenomenal. Um, just absolutely incredible. And um, the Mark Hamill voice acting sessions. Oh, um, you, got, you got to sit, down, sit in on those? <laughs> I did. <clears throat> oh wow, I'm jealous. Yeah, um, it was it was um, it was uh, it just uh, amazing. Um, he was there is so much stuff that is on the cutting room floor of <laughs> footage that we absolutely cannot use ever 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 ever. That's <laughs> us. <laughs> um, but I mean, it was just so cool to be in the room watching him deliver his lines and just the range that he has and just you know just the enthusiasm he puts into the character like it was so cool i'm not sure i'm not sure if anyone else remembers this but when when the when the fans found out that eai was going to be shut down um it was through this gamestop article and it had like quotes like quotes from the office and i think i think um i think it was you and john John Wisenowski, am, am I pronouncing yeah, his name correctly? Yeah. <laughs> it was a very, it was very odd, odd article, and everyone was just like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> uh, I, it would not shock me. Um, I, I don't even remember. Um, I'll, I'll try, and, I'll try and, uh, I'll try and uh, uh, dig it up, but everyone was like, uh, "What's going on here?" <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I didn't. Oh no, no, not office quotes. Office space. Excuse me. Oh yeah, that, oh, that, sounds, okay. that sounds like us. Yeah, yeah, that, that that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, there was, yeah, there was a, a Milton quote in there, <laughs> just like I told him, I told him I was, I was gonna set the building on fire. <laughs> yeah, that um, that totally makes sense. Yeah, that that definitely seems like something we would do. Um, but that was that, uh, that was the uh, official statement for a while. So that was so we're like, okay, um, I'm worried, but this is still interesting. <laughs> Um, the, and that's kind of the office humor that we had was, you know, um, uh, if we did that, I wouldn't be shocked if, if we threw a bunch of office space quotes in there. Um, that, that seems about, um, our, our level of, of humor. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I would not be shocked if, if we actually did that. I, I don't even remember doing that. Um, that's, um, of, of all the stuff that I, I do remember doing, I, I don't remember doing that. <laughs> nice. Were there any, uh, behind the scenes controversies that you can think of when it came to localizing any Enix games, Dragon Quest or otherwise? <clears throat> no, not, not especially. Um, you know, um, you know, think like for me, like, you know, um, I was a huge fan of the name robot of Chemic Drive because, um, 
there's nothing in there that, that is al- actually alchemy in any way, shape or form. You're not turning anything <laughs> into gold. Uh, um, I, I loved the, the Japanese packaging for that title. Um, and, um, uh, but I, I do understand like why the decision was made to try and do like maybe a more Western style packaging for the front. Um, and, um, uh, let's see. Uh, and then for, for Grandi Extreme, no, I mean, we were all pretty happy with, you know, everything on that and the voice actors we chose. Um, no, there was never really any controversy. Like we were all, you know, pretty, I mean, we were all well aligned across, you know, everything that we were trying to do, whether it was uh, the titles we were trying to do to bring to the U.S., stuff that we were possibly looking to license. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, um, you know, what we were doing at, at different events, um, you know, the the marketing plans that we were doing, the presentations that we were doing to uh, the buyers um, and working with our, our, our partners. Yeah, I, I I can't think of there, there was yeah I mean there wasn't a lot to be controversial about um, you know um, we you know we really trusted each other to do what was best for the title um, and so whether you know I know some people get upset like you know what, you know if you change the name of the main character for the U.S. market or <laughs> um, never, never yeah, yeah never. <laughs> uh, you know I know. Some people get, you know, crazy upset if, you know, you make, you know, pop culture references um, in the games, um, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there, there wasn't there wasn't anything really to be controversial about, um, you know, uh, we were all um, we all wanted success for each other. And, you know, we were always ha- even when, you know, um, our competitors uh, I'm throwing air quotes in there for for those of you at home. Um, you know, like people like Atlas or uh, Working Designs or people that were also doing RPGs at the time and and doing you know fantastic job. You know, we loved celebrating their success as well. Um, you know, um, a rising tide lifts all boats, and you know we we all felt that you know as fans of the genre. You know, anything that we do to bring in new blood into the community is going to make everyone else's RPGs sell better as well. So, um, you know, it was um, really there was there was no real controversies. Um, You know, I I think there was a lot of things we learned. Um, You know, I think uh, I think we released Robot Alchemic Drive the the same week as the Grand Theft Auto 3, Grand Theft Auto 2. And and, you know, just um, everything that that came out at that point in time just got you know it was it was an avalanche of of sales for grand theft auto and everything else kind of um suffered and um but you know our our thinking was that you know there will be people out there that aren't going to buy grand theft auto unfortunately i don't think there was anyone that that didn't buy grand theft auto that week (laughs) was um like actually actually me i didn't (laughs) yeah See, Dwayne's the only one. I might be yeah, the, only the only one. one. Exactly. Dwayne, that's I don't watch Twitch, it. and I don't, and I don't, I don't play GTA. So <laughs> that's because you I'm live the, it. You go outside. I'm the, uh, I'm the one out of the ten uh, <laughs> dentist that doesn't recommend that one toothpaste. Sure. Yeah. It was. I'm, I'm guessing it was probably three, because three was the one that really blew up. Like really, was, really, yeah, really. Yeah, blew that was up. the three D one. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, I think we did that the same same week or a week within a week, I think, of of that release and. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, we learned from that. Um, and um, but we were all aligned on on the reasoning for doing it. 
So but this, is this it popped uh, into oh. this po- sorry this popped into my head earlier when we were talking about uh, uh Dragon Warrior Seven. Um, that infamous picture with all the binders, the shelves full of binders, the localization was that taken at your office? I think so. Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, yeah, that was um uh that was in uh George's little section. Uh, George Tory, who was uh, our head of localization. Yeah, uh, that's that's how much text is in RPG. <laughs> Especially and it one was. Of that size. And it was like size, just like 10 point size font, right? On like double sided. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you've got all the item names, item descriptions, uh, enemies, um, all your past and present islands, all your NPC text. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it adds up. I remember when, um, I, I think I had to, I had to print out all the Grandia extreme text and put it in binders. And it was, um, it was, it was a massive amount of, of binders that I, that I used. It must, it had to have been at least like eight, three inch thick binders of, I, I think it took me like a whole day to like punch all the holes through the paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was, it was nuts. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, it, it, RPGs are no joke. Like, there's a reason why they take as long as they do. It's not like you can just you get like a text dump of everything, and then you can just run it through like Google Translate and come back in the next morning and like your text is there, and then you can just like you know find like you know copy it into a directory and like the game automatically reads it properly. Like, nope. there, there's yeah. a ton of work. So is it uh, is it frustrating when you've played an integral role in reviving a brand and that role is seemingly overlooked and forgotten? I know I know when the merger happened, you got a uh, 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 Square Enix just pretty much. Oh, Enix. Oh, they I don't know what you're talking about. Who are those guys? <laughs> yeah, no, not really. I mean, I, I get it. Like, you know, um, it, it wasn't their fault. Um, it, it's, you know, um, it, it's, you know. I know the work that I did. Um, the fans um, hopefully still remember the, the work that that we all did at um, at Enix, and you know it, it just it, it's one of the unfortunate side effects of of the the merger, and and you know for a lot of those guys at Square Enix or or what became Square Enix, like a lot of them were friends of ours. Um, and um, and so for a lot of us, like we were hoping you know we'd get to work with more of our friends. And so it wasn't really their fault necessarily that like, you know, that none of us came down there and worked there. It wasn't their fault that like from a, a communications standpoint, it was kind of like, you know, we're not, we're not aware of anything that ever happened on their message board. We don't know anything. Um, it just, you know, it, it happens. Um, and, you know, for those of us that, that worked on those titles, those of us that were you know on the message board um and, and those of us that were were fans you know um we all had a fantastic time um making games for you guys so good it just it just seemed like such a <laughs> such a stark stark contrast to everything you guys had been doing yeah. and and you're talking about lifting lifting others up it just seemed like it would have been nice to have gotten some acknowledgement just like hey these were the people who came who came before us? We're grateful for the work that they did, and you know the work that they did is valid. And you know we still want to, just like you can purchase these titles if you want to. Yeah, yeah, it was it was um, it was crazy to see how fast they swapped out the uh, the logos um, on <laughs> on on the packaging. Um, I always thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, um, it, you did get the sense that it happened very quickly though, too, because the you know the Enix forums were shut down. There was no transfer of the community. It was you know. <laughs> 
between the merger uh we just had to kind of disband and then some joined up later for slime nights but there was no uh it was just like effectively shut down the community forum and then there wasn't there was just kind of a gap there yeah there was there was the one guy who came in yeah and just and said and said all of uh, all of his favorite games are final fantasy titles which like Read that room, is bro. something I, like a Read masterful troll right there but i don't think it was intended as one <laughs> but but then but then like he just, i think he made like a couple other comments and that was it and i think i think justin yeah. you had logged in from time to time to answer questions but like you kind of weren't supposed to or something like that yeah it wasn't that i wasn't supposed to um i just you know we we set that guy up with the account and like and then i just couldn't let you guys be ignored um right you know? and what were they gonna do like let me go like, again yeah again <laughs> you know um uh so you know and and you know I was, I missed interacting with you guys, um, you know, and uh, so, you know, the, the few times I, I did jump on there, you know, I tried to give the guy that came on board kind of the space to, um, you know, take over and, and own uh, that section. And um, it didn't seem like that was high on his priority list. And so, you know, I wanted you guys to know that you guys weren't forgotten by us um, and, and, also that, you know, I missed interacting with you guys. Yeah, oh, I missed you, too. Um, so when it when EAI was effectively shut down, so where did, where did you move on to after that? Uh, let's see. Um, after that, I went to Age Tech um, and worked on a bunch of the Armored Core games, uh, Magic Pendulum, uh, Wild Arms Alter Code F. Oh, you uh, worked on that? I did. Oh, that's one of my favorite games of, the, of all time. Yeah, that's that's great. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I worked on the localization for that. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, that was that was uh that was a, an experience all to itself. Um, and then after Age Tech, um, I lived in Japan for a couple of years. Um, and uh, uh, went moved back to the states and, and helped a buddy of mine start a um, a video game accessory company. Uh, did that? Moved back up to um to the Portland area and uh, worked for a, a, a manufacturer's representative that worked uh, really closely with Game Crazy, um, Game Crazy, uh, Amazon, and Costco. And so I worked with um, about uh, a dozen or two dozen or so publishers here in the U.S. to help them get set up on like Amazon get their programs put in place at game crazy um and was kind of a facilitator between the the buyers and um a lot of smaller publishers so that was a lot of fun and then i joined uh bandai namco and was there for uh, five years i believe and then um i had an offer to head up publishing for mattel um and then was it mattel for like seven years and then uh, just joined a, a new company in uh, in March of this year. Okay. Yeah, and I was gonna I was gonna bring that up too. So you're the market marketing director now for that company, which is called uh, Metalcore. Can you tell so, us a little bit about them? Yeah. Uh, so the game is actually called Metalcore. Oh, okay. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. It's a free to play title. Um, it the uh, same development. Uh, a lot of the de- development team from like classic titles like the original mech warrior stuff that came out on pc way back in the day Mm. um uh we've got members who have worked at lucasfilm uh we've got um our cto is one of the guys that did the original back end for world of warcraft and a lot of the other blizzard titles back in the day um 
our executive producers worked on a lot of the Call of Duty titles at Activision. Um, uh, the producer we just came on board, I've worked with really closely with at, at Bandai Namco. It's a fantastic team. Um, it's it's a, a small, tight-knit group. It's, um, it's a free-to-play, open-world, uh, mech action, first-person shooter, um, and it's going to be coming out next year. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, you know, a very incredibly beautiful game. Um, you know, uh, we've got a guy who did, um, a lot of cards for uh, magic the gathering, Stefan Marchnier. He's also done a lot of concept art for star Wars and star Trek. He's done a lot of concept art for our title. Um, uh, there's, um, uh, the game also introduces kind of some blockchain gaming elements to it, which I think is is a really neat um, look at how the future of gaming might look. Um, and uh, um, so it was really an opportunity to kind of get in on the ground floor of, of some, you know, groundbreaking technology and um, in in a way that could affect gamers and gaming in a way um, really that hasn't been seen since like, you know, in-app purchases were um, introduced. You know, back then it was, you know, oh my God, I'm going to be microtransaction to death. And, you know, free-to-play gaming on on mobile and even on consoles has come leaps and bounds since then. And um, uh, blockchain gaming, I think, um, uh, quite possibly has uh, the, the possibility to, to really give players agency um, for the items that they create or or find in the game, um, and and you actually own um, the items in game. Nice. Oh wait, oh wait, that's me. I'm up. <laughs> so uh, so you've been you've been in the gaming industry for well over 20 years. Uh, what's it been like working there? Just like any any fun and just super crazy stories that you may have. None that I can tell. Um, so that means uh, there are good ones. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, anywhere you work, there's there is crazy fun stories. It's always about the fun is is the the people that you work with. You know, it's the people you interact with every day. It's the people you're down in the trenches with. Um, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, I, I've worked with some incredible people um, that I've learned and just incredible amounts from, you know, whether it's, you know, Victor Ireland at Working Designs, uh, Shizuya Furukawa uh, at Sunsoft. Um, uh, let's see, um, <coughs> um, uh, you know, people like Andrea Frechette, who I worked with really closely, uh, and Carlos Rodriguez, uh, uh, Jeremy Rosenthal and Ken Fox at TDK Media Active. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's always crazy fun stories um you know um yeah it's none that i can tell publicly that wouldn't get me in, in trouble um <laughs> and but yeah i mean it's um in a lot of it's it's just you know um you can't ever take yourself too seriously you can't ever um kind of you know uh be so down in the weeds that like you know you don't come up for air or like enjoy the stuff that you're doing you know i enjoy you know Every morning I get up at like 5 a.m., you know, I'm checking the Discord, I'm checking Telegram, I'm checking, you know, my email because I love what I do. I, I you know, I get super excited, you know, um, when I when I get on the Discord and see somebody's, you know, messaged me, um, uh, you know, and, and same with Twitter and, and all the other different channels. And, and then, you know, I get super excited and pumped to, you know, uh, be working on fun titles, you know, um, and uh, each title is different. Each title has, um, you know, each title is like it's its own, 
a small person, like each has their, you know, good and bad days and has, you know, um, their needs that need to be met. And it's just, it's, it's an absolute blast. And it's an, and honestly, it's, it's a, it's really an honor to have worked on, you know, so many of these titles, whether it's, you know, um, something like dark souls where I, I, here's a fun story. Uh, I, you know, I remember, um, uh, dark souls, um, when Bandai Namco uh, signed that title, I remember sitting down with the brand manager at the time and and telling him like, this is going to be the biggest title you have ever worked on. And he had came from THQ and had worked on, you know, some big properties there um, and um, had, uh, uh, you know, was going to be working on uh, Tekken and, and really didn't know anything about From Software or um, uh, Demon Souls or Kingsfield or, you know, any of the other stuff that, that they had worked on. And, and, you know, he was, you know, didn't believe me at all. And um, uh, once that title launched and he saw how how big it, it was, like how how many f- copies sold and like just how much of a, of a groundswell of fan you know, just craving this game title to come out. He actually gave me a, a plaque <coughs> that said, uh, you were right, I was wrong on it. And it has, you know, the cover of, of, of Dark Souls. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. So you mentioned earlier making connections at GameStop. Is that how you got your start in uh, product managing and marketing? Um, so I, I, I worked at, at a GameStop store um, where I grew up um in, in that small town and um you know i'd learned a lot you know just being in that store and, and every month having to change out the the pop and the marketing materials in there you know seeing what companies did to promote their game uh, you know what they did for packaging you know getting to see every single game that comes out every month good bad ugly um <clears throat> um you know getting to see um you know who who was was trying to make moves within that the, the gaming space and and you know get into different genres or get into different um uh platforms stuff like that um and then it was it was really just um a lot of on my own time um you know doing research <clears throat> um either online or um or or you know looking at the market um and uh look at what was being done um, to support the titles because, you know, on, yeah, I mean, uh, my degree is in administration of justice and political science. Like I was going to become a cop. Um, Oh, wow. So uh, yeah. uh, And um, so a little different, a a lot different. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You get to shoot more people as an NX employee. Yeah. Um, But you know, it, it, um, a lot of it was just my own passion for gaming that, you know, and then, you know, as, as I progressed, <clears throat> you know, I took every single opportunity to either take classes online or, you know, um, do like certification programs for like project management. Um, you know, um, like I said, I had a ton of great mentors, ton of great friends that, that I learned considerable amounts from, um, you know, from from Victor and and for Akawa-san, you know, I learned kind of the the business side of things. Um, from you know Hide at Age Tech, you know, I learned you know the business side of things. Um, uh, you know, um, 
from from people like uh, George, I, you know, I learned the localization side of things, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, and from uh, Franz at AgeTech and, and Shinji, I learned a lot of localization stuff. Um, on, on the marketing side, you know, um, uh, people like Dennis Lee over at Bandai Namco, I learned incredible amounts from um, and and I'll apply that stuff daily to the stuff that I do now. So That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, I've, I've been in the Air Force for over 20 years now, and I just happened to notice that you worked uh, marketing for Yakota Air Force Base back in the day. You had briefly mentioned it uh, earlier before as well. What was yeah. that like and how did you like living in Japan? I absolutely loved it. Um, it was fantastic. It was, again, it was a, a very small team, um, uh, just just the most incredible uh, group that I've ever worked with um, in, in just, you know, a, a super small team. Um, you know, I, we won best in PACAF. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, two out of the three years I was there and, and was up for, you know, uh, best in Air Force every year that I was there. Um, you know, we helped um, the um, uh, the uh, uh, the dining hall um, submit for for best. Um, I can't remember. Is it the LeMay Award? Oh, the yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, something yeah. LeMay kind of award. Yeah, yeah and, and for those who don't know, the Air Force is split up into major commands in the Pacific Command. Uh, Japan, the bases out in Japan being part of that. That's that's what he's talking about. And that's great. That's great. That's a major accomplishment. And yeah. the fact that you got to go up for the Air Force level award, too. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, um, the I learned a ton there um, and it was fantastic. Um, you know, um, since I had been to Japan so many times for work, um, you know, I got to take, a, you know, I had, I had a lot of friends that were, you know, airmen that had just gotten out of basic. This was their first duty station. Oh, yeah. And so I would, you know, you know, I'd take a group of like a dozen of us and we'd go into Tokyo and take them to like Yodabashi camera or Bit camera, um, you know, take them out for, um, you know, um, we, you know, go hit up the Wendy's that's in uh, 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 Shinjuku, you know, um, uh, I take them to my favorite little English pub uh, called uh, Hub, uh, and I would try and time it for like when either there was like pride fights, UFC fights, or um, uh, like the Japan national soccer team was playing because the, then like the, the bar would just be raucous, you know, people cheering and and get them to experience that, teach them how the trains work. Yeah, no, I I I loved it. I would I would go back in a heartbeat. I've got two small kids right now. Um, I look forward, um, I had planned on during the Olympics going over there and and getting to see George and, you know, some of the guys from Annex and some of the other people that, you know, I know that, that work in the game industry over there, but, uh, unfortunately due to COVID there, there was just no way to do it. Um, so um, it, it is on my bucket list to get over there and see George, um, as well as, you know, Fatami-san and, and some of the other guys over there and, and, you know, um, hang out, have a barbecue or something. Speaking of, uh, bucket list, you mentioned the Wendy's in Shinjuku. Is there a special significance to that? Is, or is that like the only one in Japan? It's like, uh, should it I go to this Wendy's? Uh, <laughs> it, uh it, it was just, uh, 
um, right off Shinjuku Dori, which is like the, the main road there. Um, if you go to the Yodabashi camera, I think it is, it's like right over in that little area where, where Yodabashi and Bit camera are. So it's, it's always kind of, and it's like the only Wendy's I ever saw there. So like it was the only oh, place okay. get like a frosty and some French fries. <laughs> and have the, and have the, uh, have the staff say, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think that joke was, was around at that point in time. Um, but I'm sure it was around, but it wasn't around. If that <laughs> makes sense. Uh, and then, you know, um, McDonald's is everywhere. And I swear the Big Macs are a hundred times better in Japan than they are here in the States. I don't mm. know what it is, um, but they are. I mean, I love Big Macs. Don't get me wrong. Um, but in Japan, they are just they just taste better. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Deny that like you beef. <laughs> no, it's I, like it's like I if you, it's speaking of you. If you go to a Dairy Queen in the city, it's going to be complete garbage. But if you go to a Dairy Queen in the middle of nowhere, Texas, that will be a five-star gourmet meal for (laughs) no reason in particular. Yep. Where my parents live is um, up in uh, Salem, Oregon, and there's a a Dairy Queen over there. And, um, yeah, that place is is, – it is the best blizzard you will ever have in your life. Yep. So – uh, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned Ian being uh, Ian, what the, uh, uh, NX being a pretty a pretty tight knit uh, group. Uh, my friend Ian just texted me. I think that's why I said that. Um, uh, but you've also worked for some uh, some pretty high uh, high high profile companies like Mattel and Bandai Namco. What's the difference? What's the major uh, differences between working at a large company versus a little smaller one? Um, Which you prefer too? Uh, you know, there isn't really that much of a difference. Like when I was at Mattel, obviously Mattel is a, a massive, huge global corporation, but I'm within the, the the games team. And so that team is, you know, less than a dozen of us. Um, and, you know, um, and then if you fa- start factoring in like um, for my role, I also interacted with a couple of the other different verticals. So like the Fisher Price team, the American Girl team, the Hit Entertainment team, um, and so, you know, that it's it's still a pretty small team, you know, just doing games. Like I, I didn't have any interaction with like, you know, the actual doll or or Hot Wheels car manufacturing process, right? And so in that way, it, it's pretty similar to a lot of the other small companies I worked for. Okay. Um, you know, someplace like, like Bandai Namco, which is just recently kind of gone through uh, a change where they've moved from their their Santa Clara, San Jose offices, and they've moved uh, down here to Southern California, down to Irvine. Um, you know, a lot of the institutional knowledge um, that was present there, you know, um, there were people that had been there for, you know, 20 plus years. Um, and um, and so uh, a lot of that kind of stuff is now going to be lost, but was so invaluable when I was when I was there. Um, the you know, there there isn't really any difference. What makes the difference is is the team that you're with and, you know, having support from up top and, you know, that camaraderie of the people that are in the trenches with you. Um, and, and you can be at a big company or a small company um, and, and that makes all the difference. You know, um, uh, which one do I prefer? Um, you know, for me, I've I've always what what always interests me is the titles that I'll get to work on. So you know, um, what what interested me at Mattel, you know, was getting to to work on you know Hot Wheels titles, um, you know, uh, uh, you know Barbie titles, trying to make a difference there. 
um, where I thought that there was, you know, kind of an untapped market uh, in in that uh, space for kids games that were fun, um, you know, um, quasi educational uh, entertainment based, you know, at um, at Bandai Namco, it was, um, you know, I came on board as a, as a channel marketing manager um, and ended up um, running the the digital business there and growing that business from you know tens of millions to a lot more tens of millions, um, and and was part of that team that 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 did that and and managed all of the first party stuff, and so for me it's really just all about you know the titles I get to work on the the people I get to work with, um, and those are probably the two most important things and. And as far as like size of the company, um, you know, that doesn't really kind of cross my mind. Um, for me, it's <clears throat> it's always, you know, are, are the titles going to be fun um, to work on? Um, and are the, you know, am I going to get, you know, are is this a title that that has a chance to to be a fan favorite? You know, is, does this have, you know, um, are the people I'm going to work with, like, are they are they nice or are they like, you know, during the interview process, are they just kind of aloof and not interested? Um, so, um, you know, for me, like, you know, uh, with being in the industry for as long as I have, like, um, you know, it, for me, I, I still get a charge out of, you know, having fun titles to work on and having um, that kind of in the back of my mind always of like, Oh man, the fans are going to geek out so hard when they see this. Um, And so for me, that's, that's what I look for at least, you know? Um, And um, you know, I've I've been super happy with all the titles I've ever worked on or gotten a chance to work on or, or been a part of. And in fact, I was talking to somebody over the weekend and they're like, did you know that you have an IMDB page that like lists out like the the games you've worked on? And like, I had no idea. Um, I had never even thought to, to like look at that. So, um, uh, a lot of it's wrong. Um, I, I probably <laughs> email them before everyone starts going there and, and, you know, puts, you know, killed dragon quest four as you know, <laughs> credit. Um, trivia. <laughs> yeah. Um, please don't do that. I, 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 <laughs> that would not be, that would not be funny. Um, actually it, it kind of would be funny. It's funnier uh, in concept than execution. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's going to be a lot of work for whoever goes through with that. Um, but yeah, um, you know, uh, even even some of the titles that, you know, I got to work on Tekken Free to Play, which was, you know, uh, Bandai Namco's Tekken uh, title that was that was free to play on console. We were like the one of the, the first free to play games um, on console. Um, oh. I did uh, Armored Core Verdict Day, which was uh, I got to do the smallest collector's edition <clears throat> I've ever done in my entire life for the PS3. I did a, a 250 unit collector's edition. Um, um, you know, for Robotech, when I was at TDK, I was the first person to do a collector's edition across um, all three platforms, uh, PS2, GameCube, and Xbox. Um, you know, um, for me, it's, it's always finding new, new stuff to do new, you know, um, and, and working on fun titles. Um, Cause at the end of the day, if it's fun for me, I get to be excited about it. And, and I hope that comes across to the fans that I get to interact with about it. Nice. So in your opinion, do you think like a limited marketing budget could hinder the success of a good game or can like a bigger, seemingly unlimited budget instantly make something a hit? Ooh, that, that is always the, the $50,000 question. Um, yeah. um, you know, you're, if that can sometimes be your budget too, like, 
Yeah, <laughs> you laugh, but I've seen it. Um, uh, it's such a hard question to answer because you never know what you think might be a hit might not be received that way. And and having a, a small budget might actually be better at at a, a bottom line and top line level looking at the financials of the title, you know, not spending a lot, the title doing, you know, decent numbers, but, you know, would a budget 10 times as much equal 10 times more sales or would a budget 10 times as much equal the same amount of sales? Hmm. And so it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer because there are so many other variables that go into it. You know, what is, what is the marketplace of that time? Um, you know, who, who would have thought, um, you know, look at like something like Demon Souls, for example, um, you know, who would have thought that that game would have, would have blown up the way it has and, and, you know, spawned three incredible Dark Souls titles and Elden Ring. And then like you go back in time and you look at like, you know, it, it, these games are kind of like the spiritual successors to like Kingsfield. Um, and, you know, Kingsfield always kind of really had just a very um, <clears throat> smallish fan base. And then, you know, Demon Souls comes out and the game is hard as hell. And like, and the fans just love it. Like when, when for so long, like games have been moving more towards a like um, very structured, very like, okay, if you don't figure out how to beat this level, like the difficulty is going to come way down for you, um, you know, and and this this kind of almost like hardcoreification of of gaming took place, and now like you know all these other titles that are are souls like it's it's incredible to see, and it's it's exciting that you know people are starting to make games hard again. Um, so um, for for me, that's you know really cool, but you know. Uh, a massive budget doesn't always equal um, a, a huge amount of sales. I mean, um, you know, you could find just as many titles from massive publishers that had, you know, massive tens of millions of dollars in, in their marketing budget alone that completely underwhelmed the marketplace, both and not necessarily because the game was bad. Um, it just wasn't the right game at the right time. Um, you know, I, I for me, like, you know, I, I love, um, you know, on the PS2, I loved playing uh, SOCOM. Very tactical, squad-based. Everyone had to work together as a team. Um, and then, you know, Call of Duty comes out and it's, you know, run around with a shotgun while you're being, you know, cursed at by a 12-year-old kid. Um, and and th there isn't that that cerebralness to it of, of the gameplay of like, you know, go, going slow and like holding the choke points, working together as a team um, or, you know, um, like a Medal of Honor uh, that EA did, um, you know, had a fantastic marketing budget, um, had a fantastic marketing campaign. And for whatever reason, um, you know, didn't, you know, do as 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 great as EA had hoped. Uh, which is unfortunate because I thought, you know, the game was fantastic. I loved playing Medal of Honor. Um, um, but yeah, and then you can find examples of, you know, like Demon Souls has had a, a, you know, a small budget and did phenomenal numbers. Um, and um, and even uh, the first Dark Souls had a, a pretty small budget and, and did even better numbers. And then, you know, Dark Souls 2 got a bigger budget, did even bigger numbers and that, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So I don't think there's a, a, a definite answer. 
um, because there's so many other variables that go into it, unfortunately. I, I wish I knew the answer to that um, because uh, I've got to start planning my budget for next year. So It's something that, and maybe this is something we can do kind of a deep dive in on later, is that I've it's it's like lately, back in the day when when fans would get asked like what's your favorite dragon quest game they would always say four now now it's just like instantly it's five uh five is always mentioned in in like all the articles and the best ofs just fans always say that five is their favorite when five came out for the ds it had no marketing at all it had a very yeah. nice website uh it had banner ads on game facts and then it had uh, a print ad that i saw maybe twice that's it uh so the game did not sell too well and then and then they kind of released it on mobile and they're like oh hey the oh hey the dragon quest games are on mobile now and everybody was like okay thanks uh and and it that game kind of went from nothing and it seems to have finally found its audience and it's getting the appreciation that it deserves and yeah where it came from i have no idea just from word of mouth yeah and you know what's crazy is is there is so many great rpgs that are like that um you know um uh you know for psp uh jean d'arc i thought was uh just fantastic uh great story uh great art uh great tactics based rpg uh leviathan tactics is another one uh that came out from axis um i think is a, a incredible uh tactical rpg um uh, you know but you you see that kind of ebb and flow of of different games getting the the respect they they kind of finally deserve sometimes many years after after their launch um you know whether it's um you know, uh, there was a, a fantastic game I loved for uh, the PS1, um, uh, Dragon Valor, that was done by Bandai Namco, which I think is is really, really cool, um, a really kind of under-the-radar RPG. Um, and then, you know, um, you see, um, you know, Valkyrie Profile sold well at launch, um, you know, did, exceeded the numbers that, that we had for it. But, you know, with all these successive launches and and different um, titles within the, the, the overall brand, like, you know, people are going back and, and finding the original Valkyrie profile, playing it and, and losing their mind over like, oh, my God, like this game is so good. Um, you know, and and things like the PlayStation Classic and uh, PlayStation Network are, are definitely massive help um, in in getting those older games in front of new fans. Um, the same thing, you know, with the Switch as well. Um, so, you know, there's there's a ton of of great RPGs that you know you might have never have known of, um, uh, but you know, uh, get out there and experiment with with different RPGs um, and uh, play play as much as you can because you never know what that next kind of hidden gem could be. Oh, definitely. So of all the projects you worked on, what was the one that was the most difficult to market? Oh, Jesus. It's just like, what am I going to do with this one? <laughs> um, Oh, man. You know, um, probably. Hmm. So when I was at 
TDK, um, I don't even know if this is probably the most difficult one. Um, the they signed a a deal with Corvette to do a racing game of Corvette cars. Um, and I just remember talking to my boss and being like, you know, Corvettes are for like middle aged men. Like, what? What? How am I gonna make? How am I gonna make Corvettes cool? Like. <laughs> You know, the the last Corvette that was cool was like from the 60s. Like, you know, if you know, if the game was released now, it'd be a little bit easier because now just like the the Corvette fans are kind of are getting in that like late 40s, early 50s. Right, right. You and, know, and are still gaming. Yeah, but back yeah. then, like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that challenge back then is like, how am I gonna, gonna you know, get this out to the kids? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do how do I, you know, um, and this was like during the PS2 days so like you know you know how am i going to convince you know 18 to 24 year olds that corvettes are cool when they can't afford one um and you know the only person that they know that has one you know is the guy down at the end of the street who's got no kids and yells at them all the time like um so that one was was pretty hard um but you know luckily you know uh, there's always something good about uh you know each of the the titles that you get to work on um, and whether it's, it's the, the developer that you get to work with or, or, you know, another brand manager that you're working with uh, on the title and the friendships that you make along the way, like, you know, uh, every title that I've worked on, I've been super happy with, um, you know, the, sure there's been hiccups that, that pop up, you know, um, I remember, you know, for Armored Core Verdict Day, I, I think I had like maybe two months notice that I needed to do a collector's edition um before launch um and, and that that had been promised uh to from software and so you know had to rush and, and do a collector's edition that's why the, the the numbers for that collector's edition are so small um yeah that's a li- that's a little terrifying it, it can be um but you know um luckily you know um I, I managed first party relations so you know i had a great relationship with sony to be able to to tell them what I was going to do and, and get the approvals to do it. Um, I had a fantastic relationship with Japan to be able to get the assets in time um, to, to do that collector's edition. Um, um, you know, uh, it, it could have been way, way worse. Uh, you know, luckily, you know, um, I had a fantastic operations team at Bandai Namco that, you know, um, helped me get, get the, the box itself done in time. And um, and to find somebody who could do sticker and that I wanted for the box. Um, yeah, there. I mean, each each title has its days where you know you're just like, oh my god, there is nowhere near enough coffee to get me through this day. Um, and um, and then there are days where you're just like, this game is like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like you know, and like I said, I get up at five o'clock every morning, super excited to you know start working, start you know, driving my team to, um, to accomplish great things. And, um, uh, I, I know that we can do it and I know that, um, you know, the, the title deserves it. And I know that, um, uh, it's all going to be worth it at the end. Cool. So, uh, back then, uh, you know, back in the day, many fans, uh, believed that if a game was hit, hit in Japan, uh, it would naturally be a hit in America. So how, how did the audience differ back then and how much has it changed now? Uh, Sakura Tyson would like to have a conversation with, with you about that question. Um, <laughs> it's, it's different. Like, you know, what is a hit in Japan is, isn't going to always translate. Otherwise, you know, we'd be drowning in train sims and dating sims and, um, 
you know, uh, weird, goofy um, games that, you know, don't don't really work well here. Um, and, and that was the same for games that are popular over here don't necessarily always work over there either um you know for me when looking at something to localize it's always you know is the story going to be decent compelling engrossing engaging you know um is it going to get you sucked in and hold you for 40 60 80 hours uh, of gameplay is it is it going to you know, be fun enough to grind out and hit level 99 uh, so that you can go through and, and, you know, one shot bosses as you, you know, speed run through the game. Um, You know, for me, that's what's most important. Um, You know, there's always great games that that just for one reason or another don't make it out over here um and, and a lot of times a, a lot of that is sometimes due to um, licensing um you know, I've had titles I've looked at where it was part of a, a larger deal that locked up that title from being done by anybody else. Um, um, and so, you know, you'll find, you know, game titles that, you know, um, might not, you know, um, one title that I worked on um, uh, Vanguard Bandits, which was called Epica Stella in Japan. Um, oh, I remember that one you know, uh, did not do great numbers in Japan, um, did well in the U S. Um, uh, but you know, um, uh, let's see, um, you know, uh, uh, trying to think of other titles in Japan that, that didn't do well, that did better over here. Um, you know, it's hard to say because, you know, um, once you get in there and start working on the localization, you know, so much you can affect um, from a storyline perspective, not necessarily always from a graphics perspective, but, you know, one does not equal, you know, uh, success in, in another territory, just as, you know, just because Madden is successful here doesn't mean it would work there. And, and, and for a lot of the same reasons, right? Like at a cultural level, um, American style football isn't popular. Um, you know, it's, it's gained in popularity over the years for sure. Um, and you know, uh, from, from our perspective, like, you know, would, would the mass market want to play a, an Edo period dating sim between warring samurai clans? Um, probably not. And so, um, but that might be super successful over there. Um, and so, you know, look for titles that you know have that opportunity that that might be that you know shining you know gem in the rough that that gives you that opportunity to um give it the success a a title deserves because uh the story is so great and you know the the emotional impact of you know the choices that you make in the game or how the characters interact with each other you know tugs it at the heartstrings. Mm, so being a, being a product manager, how do you generally approach a new project? Oh man. Um, you got, I mean, one, you know, I've always, I've always started with the budget. Um, cause that's going to kind of keep me true to at the end of the day, you know, a, a title's success is always going to be looked at by somebody in finance. Mm. Um, yes, I, the title might've sold a, a million units, <coughs> But the marketing budget was the expectation to sell tens of millions of units. And so um, I, I kind of always um, stay at, at, with my budget, you know, and then it's it's 
play the hell out of the game. Learn every single thing you can about the game, each of the different classes, each of the different um, uh, areas, um, how the characters interact with each other, what are the kind of the, the personal dynamics at play. Um, just just immerse yourself in that game. Um, play it, beat it, play it, beat it, play it, beat it, play it again. Um, and um, so that, you know, when you're on a press tour, you can answer any and every single question that comes up. Um, uh, you know, um, and then it's, it's, you know, take that knowledge of the game and, and how um, immersed you are in that world and use that to, you know, make your decisions about what the, the packaging should look like. What should the um, uh, advertising look like? What should your print advertising look like versus what your online advertising looks like? What, um, uh, you know, what does your website need to look like? What information do you need to have in the website? You know, what's important for the fans to know from a lore perspective? What's important for them to know about the characters? Um, yeah, it's it's really, you know, just knowing owning the, the title that you're working on and you know knowing um everything about it um and, and being that encyclopedia of knowledge that even you know the producer doesn't even know as much as you do you know what i mean like you know you've got to be you've got to be that source of of knowledge and, and for that that brand or for that title um that that no one else um has and and that'll that'll help give you you know the the confidence in, in doing everything else that's that needs to get done, whether it's packaging, advertising, uh, PR, um, you know, the events, uh, whether it's, you know, E3 or PAX or um, uh, one of those types of shows, whether it's, you know, when you, you know, go to the, the, the retail buyer uh, meetings and you're that person that that is super excited and enthusiastic about your title because you know everything that there is to know about your game like that comes across to the buyer and gets them excited and then it that you know helps the sales team be able to sell in more copies of your game which then gives you a bigger budget because now the numbers are much higher so it it, it all kind of feeds into itself okay how do you strike that right balance between making sure the general public knows about like knows about something without it coming off as annoying and we'll get a uh, uh, to your answer in a second after our a word from our sponsor raid shadow legends <laughs> um it's definitely by not doing that um uh you know i i guess that's kind of the i, I kind of goes back to that question of like is it better to have a small budget or a big budget or um you know you've got to get the the mass market um to have any kind of you know success and how much of that mass market is is always kind of dictated and, and drove by, you know, your budget, you know, is it, is it a game that is going to be accepted by the mass market? You know, um, if, <clears throat> you know, I could do an advertisement for a game, you know, um, you know, would it have been smart to put, you know, Dragon Warrior 7 ads in Cat Fancy magazine? Um, probably not. Um but Cat Fancy has a massive subscription base. So like, you know, I would have seen it. Um, so, you know, those are the, those are the types of, of things that like you kind of have, yeah, you know, you want to get gamers into your game. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, looking at, at packaging and art design for like the, the front covers of games, you know, when I go into GameStop, you know, I can tell which ones are kind of more targeted at the, the more mass market 
um, or, or casual um, type gamer and what's kind of speaking to the existing fan base, right? Like kind of, you know, preaching to the choir, like, you know, it's got, you know, um, really, you know, gorgeous, you know, um, standard JRPG type of art. And, and then, you know, you've got stuff that, you know, tries to look uh, as closely as possible to like what, what the, the, the big dogs are doing right like you know how do we make our logo look like final fantasy's logo you know so oh yes yeah, th- yeah that reminds me of like the nintendo i don't know about so much the super nintendo days but definitely the N- nintendo days where everyone had to have D style artwork dragon warrior titles included so i know what you're talking yeah. about yeah yeah so you know and, you know there, there is that that kind of balance to it because you know um the the buyer who you know the the typical shopper at gamestop might not be the typical shopper at best buy or the typical shopper at, at target even right uh that goes into that section and so um you can kind of when you look on the shelves you can kind of see from just what's forward facing out to you you know who they were marketing this game towards uh, and um you know whether it's cutesy style graphics or, or more uh D style graphics or you know these sweeping vistas or you know very serene um hand-drawn art um you know you can you can quickly get an idea of, of who they were targeting uh with that packaging and, and you know um you you always have to you know keep the the core fans in mind first and foremost um you know you don't want to do packaging that's going to you know turn them off but at the same time you know what what are they going to look at that and and be proud to put up on their shelf and and still do something that is super uh visually impactful that is going to like get the guy that's in there to pick up madden to be like oh cool what's that game um that game looks really cool like let me pick it up let me read the back of the manual let me see if this is a game that i might like and and you know if you can do that that's when you know um you really can start you know increasing the number of of people in in that into the 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 rpg community um and and um and uh find ways to to grow not not just grow it for the the sake of the the market share but grow it for the sake of the community and grow up for the sake of, you know, having new fans to interact with and, you know, from on your guys' side, listen to your podcast or, um, you know, learn about the history of, of Dragon Warrior or uh, things like that. So, um, yeah, um, it's 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 a hard one. So one challenge that you talked about before was trying to get uh, retail support. And these days, how do you think that has evolved, especially now that there's a digital marketplace involved as well you know i mean the last time that i had to i don't know what it's like now um you know when um you know gosh it's been probably at least 10 years or so um oh it's been five seven it's probably yeah it's probably been eight plus years since since i've had to to be in that world um, oh, okay uh so i wouldn't know what it's like currently um you know i know that um you know digital presents some very interesting opportunities for publishers um to you know keep their titles alive once retail is is no longer you know supporting uh the title and and still be able to generate revenue for brands that you know might have kind of fallen off the shelf uh so to speak um, yeah 
uh, the uh, uh, the Scott Pilgrim game is a is a really good example of that that was for the PS3 and Xbox 360 era for the longest time and the license expired and so so no one had a way to purchase the game for the longest time and interest interest peaked up again and they re-released it yeah yeah and you know you can um, but I I think there's also opportunity for people to do physical stuff. You know, you look at, at the success that, that like LRG is having um, with, with a lot of their titles that they're picking up and releasing. Um, oh yeah. Like with the turtles game recently. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, uh, I think if, if, you know, if you're doing great titles, um, you're going to find, you're going to find your home. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, as a physical only title and a very limited edition, or you're going to find it, you know, as, as a digital title with a ton of, you know, first party support, um, as far as like placement on like the hero banners on, on PSN or Xbox live, um, you know, and it's, it's all about, um, you know, finding the perfect fit for, um, for your, for your title that, you know, um, cause at the end of the day, like, um, you know, you, you've got to really put, you know, all your effort and energy into getting that title into the hands of the consumer. And whether that's, you know, through uh, a limited run, like with like a LRG, um, or, or on a digital marketplace or combination of both, um, you know, there, there's a ton of opportunities and, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm a huge video game collector still to this day. I like having physical copies. Um, I have, um, you know, a, a stack of PS5 and Switch games um, on on the uh, uh, table here next to me that, you know, I can't wait to get into and play. Um, I still have I, I still have factory sealed NES games. I still have, you know, um, uh, a ton of, you know, collector's editions of stuff. So I'd love to have a physical copy. But, you know, I also, you know, appreciate having the option to get a digital version if it's something that, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to have a physical version of, you know, whether it's uh, like a sports game or, you know, something that's, you know, um, for me is not going to have any kind of emotional attachment to, to want to keep it, you know, like some of the titles that I've worked on. Um, I, I think there's, there's room for, for both. And I think it, it's really <coughs> about giving the, the player um, or the, the, the gamer, the agency to, to make that decision of, you know, do I want to own this as a physical version because I love this genre or I love this series and I will never get rid of this game ever, 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 ever. Um, or is it something where like, you know, I'm more of a casual fan, like, you know, I was, I'll pick it up and, and I know that, you know, I'm going to play it for however long. And, you know, for me, it, it does, you know, having that trading value aspect doesn't matter to me. Like, I just get it digitally like you know that way i can start playing at midnight um the night of release instead of waiting until the next day like as long as there's options for for the fans um i don't think one is is better than the other um or or more um uh better than than the other I think it's 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 up to you as as the the gamer what what choice you want to have how to spend your money whether it's on a digital version or a physical version. I think I think retail uh, space is key for bringing in a, a casual consumer 
Um, because because if you're browsing Amazon or the eShop or something like that or PSN, you pretty much have an idea just like, okay, okay, I'm going to look for uh, River City Girls and I'm going to see if it's on sale. If it's on sale, I'm going to buy it. But if you're looking for, say, like a children's book and you're walking through Barnes & Noble or Target, the happiest place on earth, uh, you're not going to have that level of um, vi- uh, uh, visibility uh, to really like see – like see a book that looks cool. I'm going to pick it up and flip through it. And you don't, you don't really get that on, on Amazon where it's kind of just a listing. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. But you know, also at the same time though, I don't know about like your best buy, but the best buy where I live, like it is sparse in there. Like, Oh yeah. It's, um, it's, it's dying quick. And, and you know, which is, is crazy because I know games are still getting released. Um, and and target you know it's better um, oh it's way better which is one of the reasons why it's the happiest place on earth and then you know gamestop is is gamestop and, and they kind of have everything but you know there, there are times where for whatever reason <clears throat> you know i can't get to gamestop to go pick up a game and it kind of you know it's something that i know i want know i want to play um and i just kind of i can't get to you know to the the retail store in a timely enough fashion and and then all of a sudden it's like kind of gone off their shelves or they're sold out or whatever and um and then there are times when i'm on amazon and i'm like oh you know i need to get you know uh uh, a couple of shirts or you know a pair of socks or order something for my my daughters i'm like oh let's see what's on amazon like you know what's you know let me go to the switch page or let me see what's on ps5 and you know just browse through those games um because at least i know that they have everything um and so i can see what's out there as opposed to whatever is 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 currently in stock at target or or a gamestop so i i think both places have its benefit um and then you know <coughs> once you know i look and see you know what's out there then i can make the decision with my dollars of like uh, i'll just buy it digitally like at least now i remember like I, I wanted that game i remember i saw when it got announced i never got a chance to pick it up i definitely want it digital or physical and then if it's you know something else and then i can make the decision like oh, i'll just pick it up on on psn or um uh, eShop or wherever it's so yeah i think it's but i think having both available is is a benefit to the consumer because then they get to choose how they they spend their hard-earned money um you know so so i asked this for no reason in particular but have you ever seen a marketing campaign that was so bad that you're you're just like i i need to take charge of that just like just like let me do it let me do it no i mean hmm i'm sure i have um i just can't think of one off the top of my head i mean even when you know um yeah i mean i I've always kind of respected the decisions made by the, the brand managers for the the titles, whether it's it's externally or um, or you know coworkers, because um, they're so much more in, in invested in in being knowledgeable about the title, and you know especially for like RPGs, like you know um, it, it's. It would be pretty hard to to mess up the marketing that bad, um, especially when you know uh, 
the fans, you know, are, are so just, you know, uh, starving for for new games and, and new um, new stuff to play in, in, in the genre. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of one. I mean, have you guys ever seen one that was... Well, I, when Dwayne was mentioning Raids Shadow Legends before, was that is that because you're seeing it all the time? Yes. <laughs> oh, so that's, yeah, when I see stuff like that, if I get inundated with the same ad over and over again, that's where I kind of wish I was in charge of their publishing so I could frequency cap them. <laughs> yes. You know, there's not enough of that going on i think and going uh, back uh going back to dragon quest 5 um dragon quest 5 got nothing um and it's and like i was saying before it's a miracle it even found its found its audience mm-hmm. and my reasoning back then is pretty much the same that it, as it is now if you're not going to spend the money to do just the bare basics to get it out there why even release the game at all why are you spending all this money on localization and production to just just be like eh. you have to what's that there you sometimes go you have to that's true and sometimes sometimes people uh way way above you uh promise that yes this game will will come out stateside and no we won't spend a lot of money on it or mm-hmm. yes we'll we'll, uh, we'll bring it out in the states and then you know the the budget kind of gets slaughtered to support other stuff mm-hmm. um interesting yeah mid, then, mid project right like you're you're well, in the middle well, of the yeah, uh, you know, um, sometimes promises get made to, you know, uh, the developer or the producer in Japan, like, yes, this game will come out in the U.S., don't worry, don't worry. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then, you know, the U.S. office is told, like, yes, this game has to come out in the States, um, get it on your roadmap, um, you know, no, you're not getting any more marketing dollars, figure it out. Um, and, and that, and that like, happens, that happens if, all the time. If you get a sense that somebody is trying is trying their best, like cool, I'll I will I will never complain about that. But it's just like sometimes sometimes when it seems like people aren't trying, that's that's when it becomes um, becomes a frustrating. And just as a graphic de- uh, a designer, I will unleash a Billy and the Clonosaurus level rant at a Starbucks menu because you can't read the damn thing. Sure. And if you can't read it, then it fails. If you can't read it at even close up, it fails as a menu. Yes. And, yeah. and my girlfriend is like, no, no one but you cares. Like, that is not true. I didn't think this one was bad, per se. And I can't remember which Final Fantasy game it was, but there was a. I was watching an NBA game and it was sponsored by whatever oh, yeah, Final, Final Fantasy, Fantasy game. 13. 13. I thought that was an odd choice. I was like, okay. okay That's cool. it? Is it said sponsored by or was there a commercial to go with it? Uh, I don't know if there's commercials to go with it too, but it, it, they were sponsors of whatever game was going on at the time. It just I thought that was an odd choice. It's mm-hmm. um, Yeah, it, it's all about uh, that impression mix of how many eyeballs, you know, did you, you know, get yeah. in front of your game title. And, mm-hmm. you know, um again like you could advertise in you know cat fancy uh, which has a, a huge uh, north american subscription base um and, and, and is it going to help you any right are you getting your bang right. for your buck at that point yeah yeah exactly yeah it would have to be more targeted than that yeah so and, and you know um and i'm sure that you know it was it was a, a test and learn for them uh to see if it if it helped move the needle at all to mm-hmm. you know and because you know if it does then all the other games that they're working on might get the same uh treatment 
um, and, and help raise all those the profiles of all those other game titles. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, experimentation, I've never I've never had an issue with with, but like when it seems like we're just spending all all this money just to flex, it <laughs> seems like well you're just you're just wasting money at this point, and this isn't reaching anybody. And yeah. and again, just like when when you're on the creative end, it can just be kind of frustrating it's just like well this money can or can go to something else and this designs can be used for something else yeah and and, you know for instance that nba game was it the lakers that were playing uh was it um uh you know um was it uh uh jeremy lynn playing was it um oh gosh what was his name uh played for utah was it a, a japanese basketball player a lot of times those, you know, types of decisions are also made of like, you know, we can advertise on this game because this guy is going to be playing and we know that, you know, it'll be on tape delay in Japan and, you know, it's going to have a massive audience over there and and will look great to mm. the home office. Mm, gotcha. uh, there's, there's always some kind of strategic, you know, um, idea behind it where it's not just always just like you know let's just dump a bunch of money on on nba tonight because you know the rockets are playing the uh the grizzlies mm-hmm. or m- maybe they just wanted nba tickets i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of uh professional uh, uh sports in japan they just released a series of uh slime baseballs uh to uh the to the japan baseball league out there and uh oh. I think they have a different color for every team and everything. I love that type of integration and, and uh, co-branding that that uh, I would love to see that uh, more here. Um, oh. Well, MLB would never go for that. Uh, th- those guys are so stuck in the mud. Um, I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, not necessarily with MLB, but just in, in, in general, like that type of uh, um, integrated marketing. I know we had a couple of campaigns that uh, that were sold over here. We had Langer's Orange Juice. Uh, and we had Menchie's uh, frozen yogurt for for a time. Um, yeah, that was around this around the same time. Final Fantasy got Ariana Grande to appear in Brave Exvius. So <laughs> there was uh, you or, could tell where the budget went on that one. <laughs> or as I like to call her, Ariana Medium. <laughs> I refuse to use Starbucks oh. vernacular. Oh, okay, Venti. Yes. Um. So that yeah, she's actually a playable character in the game now. So she's Final Fantasy canon. <laughs> but uh, oh, that's sad. Well, as long as as long as pete davidson is not is not canon you know what that's fine yeah that'll be just, next next, just next sponsorship just wait for that. <laughs> uh so a- any advice for uh any uh, aspiring marketing professionals in the gaming industry uh just you know be willing to take on any title and and once you get that title just you know immerse yourself in that title love your title you know, uh, learn everything there is to know about your title, the the history behind it, the the lore behind it, the the development team behind it. Who's you know, uh, what did uh, uh, what did the producer work on before that? What did you know? What is his background? Because um, that's that's going to help you get that kind of I guess like street cred with mm-hmm. the team that you know that you are uh, a, a student of of gaming and you know appreciate um the things that they've worked on um and so i definitely highly recommend that and then it's just get out in the marketplace and see you know what what your game is going to look like you know I, I used to take um ideas for for concept art for for packaging and I would go into a GameStop and and put it up on on the shelf where it would live, 
once it came out and see, you know, how does it look? You know, am I too high up on the shelf and getting a glare? Am I too low on the shelf where nobody can see it? Um, uh, you know, I, you know, um, I would talk to, you know, the, the, the managers of the video game section for, for Target and Best Buy and be like, hey, can we just put this behind the case for like a, a minute? Let me take a picture of it. Um, and, and you know, with it being behind the glass and then you've got the, the lights, you know, is there a, a massive glare that's going to be sitting right on the top of your game once it's wrapped in cellophane um, that's going to make it hard to read and, and see for the consumer to, to be able to, you know, tell the uh, store associate that they want it. Um, you know, look at what other people are doing for packaging. Look at what... Um, look at what people, uh, you know, the different publishers in Japan are doing for packaging. Look at what Europe's doing for packaging. Look at, um, look at what isn't being done for packaging. Um, you know, whether it's foil stamping or embossing or uh, serial numbers or, you know, things like that, like try and find cool stuff to do that will set you apart from what everyone else is doing, whether it's, you know, that type of stuff, colors being used, you know, what colors are going to pop off the shelf the best, um, you know, uh, really just dive in with both, you know, both feet and, and take the plunge and, and, you know, look at how your, your title is going to be seen by the consumer and not just by you know you behind the desk essentially um and interact with the fans for god's sakes um, uh, it's fun like it doesn't hurt um you know they're super appreciative it, it's you know you'll learn stuff you'll you know you'll laugh you'll cry you'll have the time of your life um you know uh, interacting with the, the community is such an important part and just <coughs> You know, you can be super anonymous too. Like you don't have to let the fans know that you're actually, you know, so-and-so from game publisher, just jump in there and, and, and be a fan with them for a day um, and, and go from there. And, you know, if you have to, you can get it to where, you know, you can um, uh, uh, let them know who you are so that, you know, you can, you know, interact with them in a, in a different way and, and actually, you know, ask, questions and, and have an informal group of people to poll um, of, you know, what packaging they like best, what they think looks coolest, what, you know, um, uh, you know, what swag, you know, is going to move the needle um, either at, at a fan focused event like PAX or, or like a, um, an E3 or as part of a collector's edition. Like, don't be afraid to, to, you know, ask people that, you know, love the game as much as, as you do, you know, their thoughts. Um, community is, is so important for, you know, every type of game, whether it's mobile, console, PC, you know, whatever, like, you know, the, the fans are going to tell you what they think and, and you're going to learn from it and, and their title is going to be better for it. Well, that sounds like very sage advice. Excellent and that's advice. it. What's that? That's excellent advice. Yes. And that's it for this episode of Slime Time. Uh, we'd like to give a very big thanks for Justin for coming on today for this episode. Thank you very much. Hey, no problem. Hopefully it all fits on one episode and not three. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it work. 
<laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, so sure. we nice. so we don't use Patreon. We won't half inch your hard earned money when we can offer you quality content about the game series we know and love for free. If you do have any money that's just completely burning a hole in your wallet, pouch, bottomless bag, or searchable wall sack, and you would like to donate anything to a website that's been sort supporting Dragon Quest fans for over twenty years, stop by Dragon's Den at www.wudis.com/den and click on support this site. Wudis owns and maintains the Dragon's Den DQ fan site, and he personally edits every YouTube version of our podcast. He fully appreciates any donations to help keep the servers running. And the Dragon's Den Den's uh, I. Uh, let's let's start that over. The Dragon's Den website also features an Amazon affiliate link. If you if you click the link, then make a and make a purchase, a small fraction of the sale will will go to support the den. It doesn't cost you anything. And Woodis even has a Slime Time T-shirt for sale. We'll have the link in the show notes. To advertise with us, reach out to us at slimetimepodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or questions for Dragon Quest Slime Time Podcast, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at DQ Slime Time. And could, uh, consider joining in in tons of DQ di- discussions at the Dragon's Den forums, one of the few remaining forums still around. Press F for the Annex forums. Find it uh, from the Dragon's Den main page or at whatis.com slash forums. You can also find uh, Pindy and other rabid DQ fans uh, through the Dragon Questers Facebook group. Yeah, and, uh, Justin, I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a copy of the, uh, a fan-made copy of the Enix forums. Uh, I'll send that over to you. Yeah, it's oh. just, it's like a, it, it was a clone that uh, SDP Warrior uh, put together before before everything shut down. Oh, and we wow. were, yeah, we were actually, it, it's got all that stuff, uh, Robot Alchemic Drive, and and uh, I'm sure the Busted Groove forums on there too. We'll send that over to you. No way. Oh man, yeah. it's going like, to be like Nostalgia Weekend. <laughs> That's awesome. Come hang out with us and tons of other hardcore Dragon Quest fans on the officially unofficial Dragon's Den Discord server. We'd like to thank everyone that made this possible, such as Woodus, for his support of the series and this podcast, for and for keeping the Dragon's Den's lights on for decades. Thanks to Amanda Lepre and the Descendants of Erdrick for allowing us to use their music for our podcast. Descendants of Erdrick is a video game tribute band from Austin, Texas. Check them out in their album Advent at www.descendantsofurdrick.com or on Twitter at Diaverdrick. And check out Amanda Lepre streaming on Twitch. Our thanks to our wonderful graphic artist, Dwayne Bullock, not to be confused with podcast Dwayne Bullock, for making the awesome <laughs> artwork cover for this podcast. Podcast Dwayne was on the original iteration of the Slime Time podcast podcasts and many of our episodes you can check out more of artist Dwayne's work at Dwayne art on instagram or his website at dwaynebullockart.bigcartel.com or if you want if, if you want the highest um the highest of quality feet pics follow me on OnlyFans for only 59.99 a month <laughs> you've mentioned that so many times i don't know if it's true or not <laughs> there's only one Somebody, way to find out yeah you go to so only it's... fans and search and search for me and if you find something let me know or just or just pay me the there might be something money. you don't actually know about that's up there somebody put together i have um i'll have questions for uh uh for my girlfriend yes uh, please, and on that note please like subscribe and write a review for the podcast if you're if you're looking for more dragon quest slime, slime time check out our earlier episodes on the dragon's den anchor fm apple podcast audible youtube and more and and check out our brothers and sisters at, at arms over over at the slime times side quest podcast the latest episodes are available now and, and our new uh our new uh show as well we've got the tactfully die episodes check those out 
I don't know. I don't know why I'm. I'm yeah, we keep those copying. We keep reason. copying the old uh, uh, outline <laughs> where they're not in there. We have to check them on late. But yeah, so we'll get it right the next time. One of these days. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Dragon Quest Slime Time, slamming off. Gutrude for Slime Time, reminding you all that you must complete your adventure.